One of the Survival Podcast, the only live episode, in fact, the only new episode this week, because, of course, we're celebrating tomorrow night, 15 years of the Survival Podcast, over 3,000 episodes. And it's cool, because I get to have one of my favorite people on that I haven't had on forever, Matt Powers, with me today. He's back in the green room, and we'll bring him on in just a minute. On that, I heard from somebody today that bought two tickets to the party and can't go. And I'm only a day away now. But if there's somebody local that wants those two tickets, if you email me, Jack at the Survival Podcast with TSPC in the subject line, I will forward your email to them and you can work out exchanging those tickets if you want to. Uh, just a quick thing in the open there. I know it's last minute, but they're there, they're available, and they're the only ones available because we sold out. All right, next up, before we get Matt on, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Start Nine Sovereign Computing. Um, Guys, I want you to understand something about this whole idea of cloud computing. There's no such thing. Cloud is a marketing term. It means somebody else's computer. So when you use Gmail, you're using somebody else's computer, Google. When you use someplace to store your photos, whoever you're using, you're storing your photos there. When you use somebody else's service to do your instant messaging, they are providing a service and they have access to what you're doing, whether they say so or not. How would you like to take back freaking everything? And in a way where you're like this super smart, techie-looking guy, but if you can install apps on a smartphone, you can use the Start9 Embassy server, and you can run a Bitcoin node, and you can run a Lightning node, and you can run your own relay for uh, Noster. There's all kinds of stuff you can do. Take back your digital sovereignty with Start9. And remember, you get 9% off all Start9 products if you're a member of the MSB. And yes, you can stack that using the Fold card, earning sats back, and another 9% off. That's pretty badass. Next up today... Uh, you know, we're going to be talking about permaculture and soils today. Paul Wheaton has this permaculture adventure bundle. It's over $500 worth of stuff. It's on sale right now for $65. Some of you snoozed and you missed out when it was only $35. Now it's $65. It's still a heck of a deal. Tons of names you know built into this. Lots of great premium digital content. I'm, I don't know that I'll be bringing this to you again after this weekend because I know this is kind of a limited time deal, but Paul's folks have neglected to tell me exactly what the sunset date is, if the price will go up again or whatever. But if you missed out on the first good deal, don't miss out on the second one. Check it out. Link in the show notes for you guys today listening to the audio. If you're in the video, uh, links for the Permaculture Bundle are not just on the audio side. They are in the video notes right below. With that, I want to welcome our special guest. Let me get this view right here and bring uh, Matt Powers into the TSPC studios. Matt, we were talking, and that's why we started a little bit late. We got the uh, BS in a bit. We have not connected <laughs> in a long time, and that sucks because you're like one of my favorite people, and now you live like three hours away from me. Well, it sounds like we're going to have to do more together then. I think so. You know what? I, I should I save this for offline, but maybe we can get you up here for the TSP workshop this November. Sounds good. That would be cool. I, the, a brain cell just popped, and I thought of that. Anyway, let's not go there right now because then it'll just be like, you know, one of those meetings where two people <laughs> are talking about BS and the other 10 people sitting around the table like, why are we here? So anyway, um, let's start off with for people that have not heard of you before, they haven't listened to one of your past episodes with me, and they don't know who and what a Matt Powers is, 
what's your background and how did it lead you into the world of permaculture and soils? So I started off as a musician. I was a bass player. I was a professional musician. I was in New York City, a completely different life that I live than right now. And I met my wife. We got married. We start, we had our first child. I was living in a two-story apartment in New York City that I was paying for with just bass, right? Okay. And then she got cancer, and she wanted Ooh. to recover after the surgeries and all the madness of the way they were handling cancer. It's over 12 years ago now. I think my son's turning 17, so that would be 14, 15 years ago. Okay. Maybe maybe a little bit longer. Um, and so it's been a long time. So they handled it was terrible. And she wanted to recover with her family. We moved out west. I started – cancer came back. I started trying to figure out how to take care of her and, like, stop the cancer. And so we started eating organic. And then I realized, like, not all organics are the same. And I started <laughs> – we started doing everything. And I couldn't I, – I, I decided I needed to grow food. And I started gardening. And I needed a day job. So I became a, a substitute teacher. I, I was the, the guy who walked in with a guitar like, I'm going to distract you for an hour, and then yeah, I'll get yeah. paid. Yeah. That's, that was me. And and I, growing up, I had a really good education. Growing up, I was very physical. I was a ski racer. I, I, I had all these crazy blessings in my life that were, like, latent. They were just, like, part of my past. And when I was subbing in Fresno, in this is, you know, the sixth most violent county in America, in Madeira, and then Fresno, put those together. I mean, there's more gang members in, L in Fresno than L.A. Okay. And so, like, these kids have not very many options. And watching how they were treated, watching what they were actually being taught, whoa. I was like, these people are being completely, like, pushed into a certain way. And not only that, they're being lied to. Like bold-faced sure. lied to and given no real skills. And so I went in there and I, I realized like we could actually help people. And I was at the same time learning permaculture. And so I was like, all these people could be doing permaculture, starting up entrepreneurship, starting up a local economy, changing the, like their relationships with their local community, all of it. And I became a full-time teacher. Uh, I, I started, I was an English teacher, but I started teaching permaculture mixed with English. So much so they gave me a huge garden area. They gave me this like, like, they gave me free reign. They gave, they moved my classroom. They doubled the size of my classroom. They moved me into the science wing, even though I was English. I was the only English teacher in the science wing. And, and I got to the point where I realized that we needed to create curriculum. And so I wrote curriculum, the first K through 12 curriculum for permaculture, hands-on science, essentially. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really what it really is. Permaculture is a way of seeing the world through nature's eyes, but that's, you know, the highest level of science, right? That's just like being, yeah. being, being also being pragmatic with our surroundings, looking to like our, 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 our prepping, ancestors looking to like what's modern prepping all of that bundled together and so it felt really congruent i'm like this is going to save these people money these kids are going to be able to, some of these kids are going to get kicked out at 18 right this is yeah. a really depressed area 
And so I was like really focused on this. And then like the district turned on me all at the same time as like success. I was about to go Karnak and go, let me guess. You were hated for this. <laughs> yeah, I, I basically did really well at the Kickstarter right as they banned my son from stepping foot on campus. My eight year old. Well, he was 10 at the time. Yeah. Because my son had been coming with me to school and I had been teaching in a very non-conventional way. Uh, I still teach in those kind of ways. I, I, I basically got my master's degree in best practices and realized all of schooling was purposely designed against what would be best for our kids psycho psychologically. Sure. So Dumbing Us Down, John Taylor Gatto's book was handed to me before I was allowed to teach at this charter school. And they're like, listen, this whole system's messed up. You need to understand what you're doing so you don't just follow the pattern that you were like raised through. You need to understand that like these kids have been like cheated their actual opportunities of being like truly empowered Americans. And we're going to fix that. Unbelievable school. And so I, I'm getting chills. Ah! And so I fell in love with empowering people, with helping people lift themselves out of hard situations. And also the pragmatic, the honest, the truth, the high integrity pathway of doing what's right for your environment. Because when you work with nature, it's 10x to 100x more powerful than all the chemical and all, and it's ethically congruent because you know you're doing the right thing. You can see it's the right thing, and you can teach everyone else how to do it. So, yeah, like you said, it is it is the it is pure science to work with nature and study the feedbacks because yeah. the state Jackie, Jackie put it after he put out this giant book with all the stuff about plants. Take it all with a grain of salt because none of these plants read books, right? That yeah. that was the way he you know <laughs> extensive. Every plant you can think of, when it grows, when it fruits, when it flowers, zones, and all. It's like, still, this is a guide. Plants don't read books. They don't obey what I wrote on paper with Eric Kosmeyer. It is what it is. And I think that's that's what makes something pure science, is you're not going out and saying, this says it works this way, so now it's my job to make it work this way. It's to test and experiment. Does it actually work this way? Because you know, like anybody else, we're like, zucchini grows like crazy, and then the squash vine borders come. Right. There's always right. some something that changes what everybody knows to. Well, not always, you know. And so that's cool. Um, and, yeah, it's not surprising to me that you were hated by the education system. I know that from our other talks, there was a time you had kids do something like make an Excel spreadsheet that created a budget based on their plans for college and how much the college was going to cost. And they really yep. didn't like that. Like that. That's basic budgeting. Like, so that tells you, like you said, best practices. We study those so we know not how to run school, right? Like, that's just absolutely not best practices. Yeah. Sure how yeah, that's, so that's why we homeschool. Something without saying, does this pay off? Yeah. It's, it's really wild that the way we have disconnected common sense, critical thinking from the education system. And so all the people that had master's degrees were homeschooling their kids, even though they were full-time teachers at the school that I, that I taught at in the district that I taught at. Yeah. And when the people protecting me disappeared, I didn't realize they were protecting me until they were uh -huh. gone. Uh, I felt all this heat and I was like, well, I'm making more money writing books. And so I started writing books and actually Eric Tonesmeyer and Dave Jackie were, were instrumental in sh showcasing what rigor should be academically. Yes. And and I come from that world. I I was a my my, my colloquium in college, you know, full disclosure was Shakespeare. 
Um, so like I was Irish studies minor. I loved really difficult texts, uh, but I loved being able to break it down and make it something realistic, something pragmatic, something meaningful. And so I just applied those skills to permaculture and science and I break things down into visuals because often that's the only way I can understand them. And I link them to proven studies to, to real places and real businesses that work and are profitable that have, you know, stood the test of time so that other people can also mo- follow those models, make that, make that same success happen in their bioregion so that they stabilize the local economies and strengthen and also give people hope and a path for, for making the, themselves better. Because just going out and working for some of these large corporations, you got to know you're not making yourself or anyone else better by doing that. Meanwhile, yeah. you're, you, you look around you. Your local economy, the, the food's terrible. There's no local stability in terms of like the fundamentals. And so I've been on this path of writing curriculum. I've written over 24 books in eight years. I've released over a dozen online courses. One of my courses is over 200 hours, the advanced permaculture student online. And I really care about making sure people have the tools and they're in the, the, they're designed in ways uh, and they're in mediums that people find easy to absorb. And yeah. so I, I, I apply, I've, I've been re-upping all the things I've ever learned in classrooms this whole time. And that's why I've been doing so many iterations. And where I'm at now, I'm at the foundation of, of all these systems. I'm in soil and I'm in the middle of writing the Regenerative Soil Trilogy. I, 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 the, the book two, Regenerative Soil Microscopy, because we got a test. If we don't look, we don't we we don't know. Is it with is with the printers in line? So I'm about to release a new book. Uh, it'll be my 24th. It's uh, it's wilder than all my wildest dreams. I never thought I would be doing DNA sequencing to check my work and working with epifluorescence mic- microscopes. And but it's it's so much fun that it makes it easy. Awesome. Awesome. So what's, well, that's what our topic is today. Now we can finally dig into it. Uh, regenerative soils. So I like to break things down to component pieces. So before we get to soil, let's talk regenerative. How do you define regenerative? Yeah. So I do not like, I just want to say it right out. I do not like the government labels of things mm-hmm. because they're political footballs. And then they just hand the ball off to the next politician and they run with it. So organic, if we look at what happened to organic, we're going to see the same thing happen to regenerative organic. Yeah. It's going to predict the future now. I'll just put it out there now. Yeah. I, my definition of regenerative soil is it gets better and better every season and there's certain metrics, right? And so we have, we have, uh, the correct minerals in the, in, in enough amounts that are available to the plants. So that, that's called mineral coherence. Okay. And then we have the right biology. And the right biology, we actually don't know how much is it, like we can handle because we're still mapping that out. So it, it continuously gets better uh, and more efficient and more, uh, and more selected individuals that we desire. So we'll have more mycorrhizal fungi. We'll have more rhizobacteria, more biofertilizers, more endophytes you know, specifics. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we have the appropriate air and water and the more structured our soils every year, 
the more there'll be interstitial air inside the soil, which allows for them to regulate so many things much easier. The structure of a soil is also what conducts the electricity and oxidation is the loss of energy. So when we talk about how soils are electrical and bioelectrical, it's because there's all these relationships are all entangled. And so air and water, photosynthesis and plant roots, because the process of taking in the sun's light and energy, taking in CO2, making those those sugars determines everything. And you could be having simple sugars and your plant's stressed and photosynthesizing and can't handle it and can't process them. And so it's leaking simple sugars and calling in the bad guys. Or you could have things as polysaccharides, complex sugars that call in the good guys and feed the good guys. And so it's really important that all these aspects are correct and and they improve and you can measure them over time. And so, and you have the correct amount of organic matter, and that's probably the easiest one to measure in many ways, mm-hmm. uh, is that are you increasing organic matter every year? And so we want to see those specific testable metrics improve year after year, but we also have to be careful with how we test that. Are we testing the same spots, and are we testing the same way in the same time of year, in the mornings, right? And And then... It was it after a, a big rain, you know, because last year it wasn't right. Uh, we yeah, need to there wasn't any. Things, right. <laughs> right. And then we also because I've been doing a lot of debunking, we also have to apply our common sense. We have to never take off our think, critical thinking caps. So when your soil becomes more structured and you're testing it for biology, and you're tamping it down into your 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 test tube. This amount of tamped down soil is going to be completely different from this, the volume of the original space of the soil profile if it's compacted versus really well-structured. Mm. It's really well-structured. It's a huge space. If it's mm-hmm. compact, it's like the spoonful is the spoonful. It goes, gotcha. right? So and volume, before, end, volume, volume before and volume after compaction shows us how much compaction was, was there to begin with. Correct. And so this is part of the reason why even – Doing the way that they've traditionally done counting of microbes can screw up people because they're tamping it down and measuring it as if those microbes in that soil volume are all the same because they're like, oh, I tested my one ML and that's ridiculous. The structure of it will change every year if you're improving it. And so your numbers will change. So we have to keep these things in mind so we don't trick ourselves. There's a lot of there's a lot of like variables that are all interlaced and interstacking in the soil and the physics and the like the, the bioelectrical side of this. But what's wild is it scales back to those five those five attributes. And we can control how much organic matter we have and are adding. We can we can add that cover crop in and we, we can control how much photosynthesis it's getting. It's like maybe we thin out the trees on the ridge that are blocking some of the, uh, of the light. Maybe, you know, what have you, uh, maybe it's you need to give your plants enough room. But regenerative to me breaks down into those five things. And then from those spaces, I go deep and come back in a correlation feedback loop so that people understand the micro to macro relationship because so many people are like doing these tests and they're like, look, 
I got the DNA test back and it says I've got all these solubilizers. And I'm like, are those the genes being selected for? How do you know? <laughs> it's DNA is DNA. That's not the epigenetics readout. You know, we select using epigenetics. And so there's a lot of common sense that I've been just helping people work through in the soil science uh, sphere lately. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about regenerative soil now that we talked about what regenerative meant we kind of bled into it but the way i look at it there's really three types of soil when we get down to this definition in america today dead soil living soil regenerative soil and i would define that most of conventionally farmed soil is what i would call dead soil it's not that there's no life in it there's just very little it's very monoculture life a lot of times it's exactly the life we don't want because we're constantly salt fertilizing it or whatever. Then we have living soils. We have better practices, maybe no-tills going on. It could be anything from conventional with no-till to pretty damn good organic farming practices or gardening practices. And then we have regenerative soil where it's not just it's alive, it can, the life continues to thrive and move forward. Is that how you would define it? And would you add anything to that? Absolutely. That's an aspect of it, the biology the thing yeah. that I was able to do is take the chemistry side of it and marry it to the biology and regenerative soil. So, that, so it was all new territory. These camps didn't like talking to each other. Yeah. And I needed to go down to the actual natural cycles of the plant essential nutrients in nature. Okay. So I was like, well, if all these plants all over the earth evolved needing cobalt, molybdenum, all these micronutrients that no one ever talks about, and there's no visual cycles or even white boxes and arrows, cycles that exists even in the graduate school, even in the doctorate school level, because at that level, they just talk for five to six pages. Hmm. You know what I mean? There's just words. Yeah. And so I was like, no one really knows about this. And so I, it's like first principles, going down to what I know to be uh, like the way these plants evolve, what's most natural. And so I mapped that out. Those didn't exist until I mapped them out in regenerative soil. And then from there, I asked the question, okay, how can I use all, and I, this took testing, all these natural solutions, all these permaculture solutions, all these organic, all these regenerative, and I'm going to vet them and see which ones match up to the actual demands of, uh, of, our, of our soil. And so yeah. I was able to take those cycles map them to the actual actions to treat the specific problems and target the specific microbes that solubilize whatever we're talking about, zinc or iron or, or phosphorus, and, and solubilize versus mobilize phosphorus as well, and nitrogen fix, all of it, so that people could be strategic about when and what they're using because they all have different effects. So we want more nitrates at the vegetative stage, but then we want to taper that down and have more phosphorus when it is fruiting with a little bit of nitrate, but but mostly ammonium and uh, and and not too much. And so it's this it's this it's this ability to tailor things that is going to allow us to get to that higher level of performance of our food, performance of our food forest orchards. And our and our uh, our grazing animals, our meats, 
um, when there's a mineral coherence in the soil, there's also a protection to the plants. And so for years, everyone's doing biology, biology, and it's like working pretty well, like 80%, 60 to 80% of the time is working perfectly. But then you see a lot of these plants, you know, maybe it's one out of five, maybe it's one out of three, they're getting hit. And so you're like, why is this getting hit by insect damage? It's minerals. Why, when it gets really humid, well, it's the evapotranspiration stopped, and then the calcium isn't being... Yeah. circulate throughout the plant because yeah. it's like a thermosiphon in every single plant. If there's not a differential, it doesn't pump. Yeah. So, so, so we've got to like apply that complexity, understand the actual cycles that work. And then we're like, Oh, I get it now. So I'm going to do water soluble calcium foliar sprays in the, yeah. the human spikes of the summer. Got it. Yeah. And, 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 and common sense arrives and I'm not, blaring it and being like you need to do this i'm yeah. not that kind of person i'm the person that like sets the picture frame and you guys see the picture and go hey do you see that too and then everyone learns and gains and you own that win and that's an empowerment path and that's i really believe how most of us were taught like we'd go hunting with our fathers you know yeah. and yeah. he wouldn't be like micromanaging he would let us play out and be like hey do you see this and you'd be like yeah. looking and looking and working you know and so we, yeah. we I, I feel like if we give each other the pieces to put things together and give each other the room and space we actually will have our, our society mature in a way that's so deeply needed yeah there's a lot in that i want to want to go back to one piece like right where you started and you were talking about how you know, if you get into the Ph.D. world, as these people tunnel down into their thing, maybe they're a mycologist, maybe uh, they are more focused on bacterium or something, or maybe they're more focused on the organic matter side of things. And what happens is I think they become overly isolated. And because science is, on one hand, a process of isolation, if I want to test one factor, then I want to make everything uniform and all in one variable. And trust me, there's some other places in science I wish the hell they would do that. But there are when you start dealing with biological interactivity, you can't ignore one thing to the other. So, for instance, there's a whole school of thought and some people I really respect in this space that are all about bricks. It's bricks, it's bricks, it's bricks, it's bricks. And if you have a high enough bricks reading and your plant pests won't eat it. Okay, great. But we'll just make it healthier and you'll get higher bricks rates. Well, why is the bricks rate not high enough? Right. Or is it possible that we can push bricks? Maybe somebody is following that person doing their thing and they go, the hell it is. I'm sitting here looking in the refractometer right now. My bricks levels are above where you say it should be. And I still have excessive pest pressure. Well, you can have a great bricks level, but if you have a specific mineral deficiency and you have a specific pest that specifically targets the thing with the specific mineral deficiency, the pest is still coming. Right. Yeah. Now, there's no doubt the plant will be healthier and more resilient than if it had a lower bricks reading because a lot of other things are working right but that's what happens when people say like it's my one thing and then that's like all this one thing and it becomes like this uh unit uh, like unique you individual specific message and we, we we forget that this whole thing is a web right and it's not just a life web right it's this massive interconnection web and so we go and we design a permaculture system and if we do it right as soon as we kind of map out how we kind of envision it, 
the first thing we start doing is drawing connections and then second level connections and then third level connections. And then we get to the root of everything, which is the soil. Now it's just one thing. And I think that's a big mistake because it's impossible to do. And I think part of it is human humanistic arrogance mm. that we don't understand. There's more going on in a teaspoon of soil than your house. Right. There's more in that if it's alive and if it's if it's if it's healthy, there's more activity in a teaspoon of soil than there is at the human level inside your house with your two dogs and your two cats. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. I I, I feel like it's situational awareness. Like if we if we recognize that we need to be aware of what's going into our plants, because it's what our plant is is eating and then what we're eating or animals eating, and that's what we're eating. People would want to shut that door if something bad is coming in. And it's just, it's just being aware. And so when we observe so much in in permaculture, it's situational awareness, you know what I mean? And we live in a day and age where there is highly questionable things being forced upon us. Uh, Highly questionable things sometimes coming down the, the 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 water coming through the water there's and we have to be resilient and so we have to test uh we have to test a mul- uh, multiplicity of ways and i mean for instance i i think i might be the first person that tested compost ph and talked about it in the permaculture worlds and soil science worlds and it was wild I was like, you guys know that like all your hot compost is like pH eight, which is lockout central. Yeah. And people yeah. are like, what? What are you talking about? I have fungi in mine, and I'm like, okay, let's pH test it. Yeah. And yeah. meanwhile, pH eight every time. And so this is why people are doing like the EM ferments. This is why people are doing Korean natural farming IMO ferments because it's a lower pH. Yeah, and, and, and I would say Johnson Sue gives you a lower pH too, and I do like a hybrid Johnson exactly. Sue, like Lazy Man's Johnson Sue, and, and my pH and my compost will be around like seven two. And the person that doesn't really understand the pH scale and it's not logarithmic, it's you know, it, it's exponential. And seven two and eight are a freaking miles away from each other. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and not only that, if if you do Johnson Sue compost, if you do hot compost, it doesn't matter which you do. Yeah. At the end of it, if you let it sit, you water in something like EM, and EM is simple. Wow. It's beer yeast. It's lactobacillus. So it's lab. So water kefir has lab, tons of lab in it. So water kefir has yeast and lab in it. So if you watered it down with water kefir... And then you uh, watered it down with purple non-sulfur bacteria, which is at Algae Barn as a pure culture. So yeah. everyone's like, oh, purple non-sulfur bacteria, the mysterious. No, 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 no. In the aquarium world, it's not mysterious at all. No. Just, <laughs> it, it's cheap. You know, go buy it. And yeah. so and, and then water that in and, and tarp it for a week and it'll be reduced. It'll be fermented. It'll have all the benefits of both worlds. That's interesting. So I didn't, I, I've never done that. That's that's actually a really cool angle. Um, I believe a big part of what makes Johnson Sue work, if it's taken all the way through, is the introduction of worms at the end of the cycle. Right? Definitely. I, I have to say, I never really thought about testing compost pH. It's just something that kind of happens occasionally, and I did notice that lower pH. 
Um, and that's very important to me because I live where the dog's alkaline, the house is alkaline, the roof's alkaline, the rain's, everything's alkaline, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't want to add to that problem. Um, but yeah, I, I would think that maybe the worm activity has something to do with it as well. But, you know, using these basic things, like if I were to turn this camera out now, there's, there's literally a wall of fish tanks. So I totally get where you're coming from with the aquarium stuff, yes. you know, and, and I'm, I got it like a, a two-way street going there. Like I'm, I'm actually rebuilding one of my planted aquariums right now. And I'm using a combination of Johnson Sioux compost, worm compost, biochar, uh, in the dirt bottom of the planted tank, which will then have a sand cap. And like, so you understand redox. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so aquarium people all understand redox. Yeah. And redox is opposite in water than it is in soil, but redox is the other side of pH. And, yeah. and that's what I introduced, and that's what allowed me to explain biochemistry to people okay. down in the microbes. That makes a lot of sense. So that's what we, that's what I did with regenerative soil. You get it. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, and that helped me get it, like where you're coming from with it. Because I'll be honest, I'm not the guy with a microscope and testing everything all the time. I'm the guy that's just constantly building organic matter and constantly adding to soil structure. Um, yeah. And then I'm judging the plants and going, well, that didn't work. And I'm, I'm looking more at the feedback. I think I would benefit from this approach, but I'm so focused on the production of eggs and ducks that, I mean, my garden's like an additional thing, right? And it, it does really well for my climate. Um, though, as you're learning, the climate here is different than a lot of other places. And you're actually what in a better like? little soil like? Well, my soil sucks. Um, I only have about four to six inches of soil and I got limestone on most of the property. Right. So the fact that anything lives here is a testament to permaculture. Now my yeah. gardens, I build 24 inch high raised beds. Yeah. And I do 24 inch high raised beds because it turns out ducks are lazy and they could jump up there, but they don't. So I figured <laughs> out what's the height that a duck will leave my raised beds alone. And so my primary garden is four very large raised beds around a water feature. And it's doing well this year. I did also find out that geese get angry at many things, including um, I'm growing these snake beans this year. They call them python snake beans, which are actually a gourd, and they're amazing tasting and all. And I went out and like, why is this vine so sick? Well, the geese had goose rage. And where it went over the arch, they, they ate through the vine. Because I'm like, vine borers don't go. Like, it's a very small vine. I'm like, vine borers don't do that. And I look at it and I'm like, ah, goose rage. So we're all learning new things every day, and no amount of soil science in the world will prevent a vine from dying to goose rage. It's just, yeah. it's just a thing. But yeah, this is this is really fascinating to me. Um, can you maybe talk about some examples of regenerative soil at work, like where this approach has been taken and what the results are? Yeah, yeah. So I can talk to what I've done here, and then I can talk to some larger examples. And so... What I did was I mapped out what Chris Trump does down to the principles. It's all the natural farming stuff and the variations he's doing. And then I mapped out what Elaine does down to the principles. And so I was able to find out the caveats and conditions. So, like, I figured out that, you know, EM is bad to Elaine and all those folks. Like, EM is an anaerobic. The microbes in EM are in every single person's compost, regardless of the type of compost it is. So yeah. like all the hot compost she's been promoting has EM in it. <laughs> Naturally. 
<laughs> so, oh, that so was a going... Carlson laugh, Matt. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> so I went down to, it's like, I, I looked at all the examples, looked at what was working for people and tried to yeah. map out why. And so I know why these things work. I know why they don't work. And so what I did with this property was I, it's all sand down and it's like six to eight inches and then it's limestone. Yeah. So I've, I'm, I'm on a, I'm on a floodplain in Bastrop right below Austin. So the river so like with sand instead of, I got like blackberry clay loam, which is great soil to work with. I just don't have much of it. Okay. Yeah. No, I got pure sand. Okay. So it heats up a lot and can kill plants. Yes. It can, it's crazy. And so I'm like fighting the heat. Uh, it's, it's a lot of sand. Um, but what I did was I worked in biochar. Uh, I worked in kelp meal because I was like, this is going to be longer lasting. I need something that's going to stick, not something that's soluble. That's just going to be leached away because it's sand. Not going to hold it because it's sand. And so I was like, I'm going to do biochar. I'm going to do kelp meal. I'm going to do rock dust. These are all primary easy things to do that everyone does uh who does regenerative soil and and then i'm going to water in the biology and so i've got those pieces in there i've got the food i've got the minerals i've got the housing in the biochar and now i'm watering in em i'm watering and i'm and i'm also doing a variety of inoculants so i'm doing rhizobia on my my nitrogen fixing my cover crops my cowpeas uh, this winter it was Swiss char- uh, it was excuse me um, it was um, snow peas it was turnips it was daikon radish and and I inoculate I'm in, I'm inoculating these things with mycorrhizal fungi I'm inoculating these things with and and for the brassicas I'm using trichoderma so it opens the door and allows that to happen. <laughs> and then I'm I, and then I'm doing all the rhizobia appropriately for for, for all the, those other things, and then I'm t- tilling them in. I have a little tiller I, I pull behind my uh, ATV and I can go up and down with it to any height I want. So I've gotten into what a lot of our ancestors did, which is grow and then till it in. Because the more I learn of, and the more I look at soil and compost, the more I'm like that tarp just sheds that plastic Mm -hmm. just sheds and the more i learn about plastic the less i want it to be in contact with my boys because i want grandchildren that are robust strong you know men and women you know when they grow up you know what i mean um and 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 so that that's a big part of it you know getting plastic out right and that all that all that um anyway endocrine disruption so I, I did that. I bought compost from uh, a cotton, uh, organic cotton farm, um, and organic chicken farm mixed. And so it's all certified organic. You know, wasn't great compost. It's not the point. I yeah. mixed it in and then watered in the EM with all those minerals and all that stuff. So I had I had fuel. I had something for them to do. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and, and also all that, the, all those microbes in the EM are going to tra- transmit all that nu- nutrient into the plants. So I was it, because of rhizophagy. That's something I also talk about in my book that was never released in anyone's books. That's 
what inspired Jeff Lowenfels to release the fourth volume in his series. And he and I are good friends now. He's one of the first people to review my book, uh, my uh, Regenerative Soil Microscopy, uh, because my book, Regenerative Soil, inspired him to write his fourth book. We got in contact. So uh, Jeff Lowenfels is an awesome, awesome guy. Uh, he goes a different direction that I go. I go very pragmatic. I want you to come up with a holistic soil management plan based on all this. Uh, and so I, I planted 40 plus trees in the upper area. Uh, we have clover paths that I mow and I've got the dichondra growing in their dichondra paths. So I, I, I'm doing a lot of, I'm doing a lot of combinations of things. The thing with regenerative soils, it gives you a palette of options so you can choose and navigate through this. Ah, Stephen Raisner's here. Hey, Stephen. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm trying um, to rope both of you guys into November right now. I'm recruiting while you're talking. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I I brought in all the nutrients. I brought in organic matter. I brought in the microbes. I planted cover crops. And my first season ever touching the soil, there's pictures of this online. I can I can share it with you. It's on my Facebook or my Twitter. I have daikon radish this thick around over two feet long and it's i've you all have seen me i'm very public with my garden with how i grow with the size of things i'm excited when things get big i'm excited when things are colorful so i always share there's not there's not like a secret like thing like oh and here's all the stuff i was really doing no 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 no. i've been doing everything for 10 years so no one has ever seen me with giant food before and these aren't special seeds these are the same seeds i always use but they look like they're like from those like, welcome to the UK giant vegetable show. And they're yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something know? grown in Alaska where they have 23 hours of daylight or something. Right. And the crazy thing about that whole something story. Like right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Rampicante. I love it. So the crazy thing about that story is I've been really sick. Um, and oh, wow. I've been, I've been fighting and getting healthier and healthier. And this was a time period when I was really low and really sick and hurting a lot. And my son was mowing the lawn okay. and he found these cover crops and I was at a really low point and my son came in holding these giant vegetables Oh, wow. I would have never seen them because they're, they're a cover crop. What am I going to go to? A, here's the cover crop. I'm going to check on you. What? Come on, right? No one does that. Farmers don't do that. And so my son brings me these giant vegetables and he goes, you did this, Dad. And I was like, I threw so those. I threw them on the ground. And it was like, whoa. And I was like, this is the proof. This is all the things I've been teaching people. I need to do this. And, and James, and I was, I was fighting fatigue. I was super sick. My son was like, dad, I'm going to film you right now. Get up, get up now. James is, a, is kind of a tough guy. Um, he, when things go wrong, he's the guy who rises up. His hero is Tim Kennedy and Giancarlo, the, the world champion. When uh-huh. he takes, gold, he's been taking gold against adults and he's undefeated against adults in jujitsu right now. He took gold at eight, two gold at ADCC the last time. So he's incredible. And so he's like, dad, get up now. And I'm like, (laughs) and I was like, all right, we're going to do this. Like, okay, we'll do this. Like, that's how my son is. Right. Um, and and so we go out and he films and, and I'm just like blown away. I, I'm so proud of my son. 
and he he outweighs me. He can choke me out. Um, he's <laughs> he's incredible. You know, when your your son's truly a man, he's truly a man. Yeah. And I just was so proud of him. And then he was like, "You're ready to film, Dad?" And I was like, "I'm ready to film, son." And then he, we did this quick video, and it literally hit a hundred thousand views oh, on wow. Instagram. It's the only viral video I've ever had, and it only happened because of my son finding these vegetables randomly in the cover crop field and showing them to me and insisting, Dad, now, now. Yeah, yeah good and for so, so I know people see that and they're like, this is so unreal. It was unreal to me. I was, I was basically at a very low point, the five, ten minutes before that moment, and my son lifted me up. And, 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 and also my garden did. Also hmm. my intention, regenerative soil, permaculture, prepping, because I grow food that's cover crop that I can eat. Why? Because mm -hmm. this whole thing can come down at any minute. Yeah. This whole yeah. system can blow up. Um, or, I mean, we're vulnerable to, to uh, enemy attacks as we see happening all around us constantly every day. And no one's reacting. And it's like Tim Kennedy says, no one is coming. So we need to be prepping. We need to be resilient. We need to be strong. And then we also need to have abundance of food and water so that we yeah. can provide for, for the people we know, people we love, and the people that need us in those times. And I also I would just say the health of a soil is the health of the people. And therefore, it, I, I don't want to go too far down this route, but healthy soils are a national security issue. They really are. And they're definitely a regional sovereignty issue. If you don't have healthy so soils in a region – you're not going to have regional sovereignty at all. And I'm talking, when I say region, I mean North Texas or Central Texas. Um, and we have a ton of people like myself and you that are very meat-centric in what we do. You're a carnivore. I'm, I guess, what Ken Berry calls ketivore, which means I'm pretty much vegetables and stuff are like condiments for me. Um, but that doesn't mean we can ignore soil because what we eat depends on the soil for what they eat. So I've always yeah. said I'm, I'm on a plant-based diet. Cows are 100% vegetarian. I eat the cow. It's a plant-based diet, right? <laughs> um, but the truth is we're all actually on a, a predator, carnivore, and uh, a scavenger diet because the life begins in the soil, and it's all about predation and decomposition. Uh, that's, that's what it actually is. That's the base of everything. But my point is I can't ignore my soil just because I'm raising goats or just because I'm raising sheep or just because I'm raising cattle that – the the trade-off of that is if I'm doing rotational grazing and things, I'm going to have improved soil to begin with if I'm doing it right. But we all have to focus on this issue of soil. And without soil health, you don't have human health. And every society that collapsed, a lot's been made of the economics and trade policies and war and all that shit absolutely matters. But in every collapsed empire, if you look at the state of their soils at the end of their empire – they looked a lot like the state of our soils and farm country in the United States today. It just happened faster and more, was more consequential because they couldn't pour acid on rock and make fertilizer. Yeah. But if a, a society collapsed, go look and see what the state of their farming and their soil was at the point of the collapse. So there are people with deficiencies in their soil that have common diseases in their country. Correct. That relate to like kidney disease because they don't have enough like nickel. Right. They're, yep. they're, and they're, they're random things. And if you have one of these deficient, your plant will pass that deficiency on to you. 
And so it's like knocking a leg out of that table. That table, if we're standing on it as a community, it's, it's going to, it's not going to be strong. And, and then John Jevons, you know, the square foot gardening, he, one of the things that bothered me about that was like, where are you getting your numbers for nutrients? Yeah. And he was like, the USDA. (laughs) 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 Oh God. I just did a post today and I said, stop trusting people who, you know, lied to you about 25 things that they're being honest with you about too. And I didn't say which things because it doesn't matter. Like everybody has their own pet things that they choose to trust the same source that they're like, did they lie about this? Yes. Did they lie about that? Yeah. Well, what about this? Oh, they're telling the truth about that because that's a pattern of behavior that you, I mean, it's amazing to me. Yeah. No testing. USDA says so. It's good. Yeah. Right. Mon- and so people that's can't- trust Monsanto, ConAgra and Bear. <laughs> that's what you just said. Right. And so folks need to recognize that the, the minerals only get into your plants if they're in the soil and, and bioavailable. So that's why we need the microbes. That's why we need to be adding kelp. We need to be adding, you know, rock dust. We need to be adding things that brings the mineral palette up to, and it's not about having it. You're like, oh, I have it. I have that microbe. People do have been doing this for years. Yeah. I feel like it's such like a, we're playing magic now yeah. and it's like what do you mean you have it how much of it do you actually need for it to manifest its actual benefit and yeah. no one has these numbers and it freaks me out and so i created this and it's still not public but i, I created this concept of the r soil database and we're filling it out and we're building this 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 database to be transparent so that people can actually see their soil tests because all over the world people do soil tests and then they don't share the results with each other. And yeah. so you're again trusting authority with no way to verify what they're saying is real. Yeah. And there's so much of this, you know, priestcraft, right? Like yeah. going on. Yeah. And I think there's something people really need to understand too. Like there's this idea if I just keep using compost, everything will take care of itself or whatever. Well, it depends on what your problem is. So if you have specific mineral deficiencies, right? So there's two parts of the mineral availability, which you're explaining. I, I need the biological life that creates the condition where the mineral can be absorbed. I also need the presence of the mineral. A lot of things can be done to increase the biological life. If you don't have the mineral, minerals are not something that the earth forms. Minerals form in stars. They're, 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 they're elements, right? So if you don't have any selenium or you have specifically deficient selenium, you have to bring in the selenium. And I know like, I don't want to use offsite inputs. Then you're never going to have selenium because no process is going to. Now, there's a lot of ways to do it. You could directly amend it. Right. We can feed something rich in minerals to livestock and let them deposit it. That's a way. But we can't just like sit down in the lotus position, contemplate our navels and assign selenium to our field. If there is no selenium and that, that then, you know, magnesium, oligurum, whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. Unless you have access to a star to create new elements from the ground up from other elements, you can't make elements. You have to introduce them some way. Yeah. And compost is actually a great medium for delivery. So you'd be spiking your compost with different things. Yeah. It's important to remember that compost doesn't have mycorrhizae. So it, it actually doesn't contain any of the, the, that amazing fungi that increases your root surface area by 10,000 times. And it doesn't have all the endophytes. 
because it's burning up. There's some endophytes that go right through, like rhizobia. People say like when you add rhizobia, you don't need to add it again. This is why. Because it exists in your compost for over a year. Why? So that the next season begins and it's there. It passes yeah. through digestion as well. So it's in all the compost. It's in all the manures. So there are, there are endophytes that are there. But they're all there's so many endophytes that are not there. And many of those endophytes are what we would call effective microbes and EM that you can brew yourself. Hmm. And then all those minerals that are no longer in your soil the thing that people have to understand is it's been erosion. It's like Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant, mountains flow into the sea, right? It's true. All If you go to Australia, they're deficient in so many different things in different areas because the soils never had glaciation come through and plow it up. So, so we need to keep that in mind. New Mexico, there are soils over there that are like from like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, millions of years ago. And so you, we have to take our context in, 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 into mind and also bring in those inputs and buying them is not a problem, especially if you have living soil that's going to keep them fostered mm-hmm. so that they, they, the flywheel of life begins. Because mycorrhizal fungi makes spores and it's, it's found in soils all over the world naturally and it knows how to stay, but we have to bring it in uh, because all none of these... All, everything that's been treated and handled in the past hundred years uh, in a standard fashion has been sprayed with fungicides, which mm-hmm. killed all the fungus. And so we've had these truly dead dirt all over the place. Yeah. And on the compost, there's people that there's I can't remember the bacteria. I'm sure you'll know it instantly. There's a bacteria that will put out this white looking thing. It's in a lot of compost. Usually, that's it. That is usually compost that's been composted too hot, and then your brassias love it, and everything else doesn't, and it takes like a year to settle in. But I make compost tea. I do it very low tech. I get a couple air stones in a bucket, and I hang a bag. And what I've noticed is in the past when I was doing a regular hot compost, if I, like I always do, forget to do something with that bag and leave it hanging in the bucket to drip for a few days, it's all hard and caked, and I go back to it and go just get rid of it. When I started doing the Johnson Sioux method, when I would do that, I would come back and that bag would be covered with actual fungal hairs where that never happened with a hot compost. Like, I mean, it was just like it looked like when you take coffee grinds and throw mushroom spores on them in a jar and it forms that net. It was just growing out. I use a burlap sandbag is what I use for my compost tea because it's good flow in between. Um and it was kind of blowing me away. Now you're talking, you keep talking, coming back to this EM. This is the thing. I feel like this is my last piece. I don't do anything with that. And I feel like it's something I'd like to add. Um, that's why I'd be freaking badass if I could get you and Steve in, in November. That, that would just be awesome. Cause both of you are that's very good about that. Um, you can bother him if he doesn't say yes. You, can <laughs> you know I'm better than me. I've just had him on the show once and he was fantastic, but it is amazing to me. Like, when we don't test, our eyes can lie to us because I can't tell you how many people have told me, well, I've got fungus in my compost and, you know, they're doing a Jeff Lawton style 21 day rapid turn. And I'm like, there's, it's not terrible compost. It's just, no, you don't, you can't, it yeah. won't live in there. You, you yeah. burn it to death. It doesn't live at that temperature. And well, it's white and they'll send you a picture and you go, yeah, that's bacteria. And it's not exactly what you're looking for either. 
What's wild is actinobacteria almost like two thirds of the time when we when we're viewing it, it's streptomyces. Streptomyces is actually an endophyte, and it's the second most prominent microbe to be found in all testing of composts. So we're never not going to see it when we look under the microscope, but when we're seeing it visually, that implies it's dominant. We don't even need a microscope to tell that. And so it's really important to not demonize actinobacteria. Uh, it's been demonized for so many years, and mm. I participated in that. I mean, I printed the whole thing with like, if, if someone has the first edition of the advanced, the permaculture student two, it has a whole quote from Elaine Ingham on how the dangers of EM got rid of that. And <laughs> <laughs> so, so we've, we've all been wrong some point. Yeah. yeah. You stay alive long enough, you'll figure something out. Um, yeah. and, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really wild to see that it's about ratios and balance not absolute yeah. numbers either. There's an absolutism, there's a reductionism, and there's also there's also just a very limited way of understanding things um, that, that's been prevalent, that I've been really working against. Because the reality is much more interesting and much more empowering, and the results are wild. Yeah. So, so my, my, I've had incredible results here on this farm um, people like Steven Reisner, who practices regenerative practices, he he blends things. So he because he comes from the aquarium world, yeah. he understands all the chemistry. Yeah. So he took yeah. he looked at greenhouse farming, goes, oh cool, I know what to do with this, and started plugging in different kinds of inputs, yeah. and getting at other exactly what he wanted. Yeah. He's so smart, and yeah. so that's really what regenerative, and that's why I leave it open ended. Um, same thing with the regenerative soil database that I'm setting up. I have this set up and all the testing methods set up so that we learn from it rather than impose opinions. Because so much of this stuff that, that you see in universities, so many things that have been taught to people, even in the permaculture world, is how things look, how things sound logical. And yeah. it's like, we got to test. We got to know our kids are eating this food. We're feeding this to the, the families in our in our local community. Um, we need, and we also need our food to be new, so nutrient dense that if there are hard times, we're getting all the vitamins that we actually need. And that yeah, was the thing. Yeah, that's the thing that no one's really talking about because plant sap analysis is still lagging. Yeah. Um, the spectrometry, the bionutrient meter, is being mapped out. There's another meter in Europe that's further along. But we're still we're still developing the ability to in real time map out the nutrient levels. But we're yeah. getting there. I'm just going to say on um, back on the kind of whole PhD isolation thing. It's probably easier to get a flat earther to admit that NASA's real than it is to get a PhD to retract an opinion that they've built a career on. Right. Like yeah. it's just very difficult once they're on the record and they've built this career and they have a thesis on it and a doctorate. You know, dissertation on it, and they've done speaking engagements. There's nothing against the person; it's human nature. Like, how can? And it's not—it's not soil scientists. It's all science. It's a physicist, right? It's a cosmologist. They're all the same way. And the older they get, and the more they have vested in their career, and that's why I think actually laymen are more the people to do the work because we're not married to anything. And it's just the best, most simple way I can put it is: everybody can agree that A is bad. 
and everybody can agree that B is bad. But did anybody ask if we put A and B together if it made them good? Right? Like, like that's as, as basic as I can make it. Or maybe A is good and B is good, and A and B are good. But if we introduce C to either or, or as a, a, a together, they all turn bad. And maybe C's not bad in isolation. I, the, the, like, so the only way to do this is to get input from as many places as possible without trying to tell people, shut up. We already know that, you know, like, cause that's, that's literally what science in America has become. It doesn't help that it's all funded by industry. No, it's from universities who are funded by industry, right? And if you want to get a grant, you put the thing on the grant that the person funding the grant wants the grant to say. And then you get the money and then you say what was wanted to be said. So that hurts in itself. But there is this kind of like fortress mentality of this is my thing and I have to defend it where I, if I was a research scientist, I'd like to believe I would be the one trying to disprove my theory before somebody else did. Right. Like, you know, and if there was any inkling, I'd grab that shit and I would run with it so I could be the first one to publish. But it doesn't work that way. People. And again, I think that there is an age thing here. And as I get older, I have to be careful about stereotyping age. But I believe it's somewhere between about 55 and 65. And it varies by individual that we just stop doing new and we just stay with what we have. We're just tired. We're older. And we just want things to be the way that they've always been. It's comforting. That's and, scary. Uh, it is. <laughs> Especially since most of the people running things today, all our farmers, all our welders, all our plumbers are all in that age bracket and they're all about to quit and no young people want to do this stuff. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of problems that relate great. I know it doesn't seem like it, but it relates exactly to what we're talking about. That if yeah. we're going to go and have progress from where we are, we have to be willing to admit that we don't know everything yet. Because we don't. Yeah, and, and I think the kids think they know everything because they've got this. They're like, oh, no, 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 hold on. Let me let me Google that. Chat now GPT says you're wrong. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Chat GPT says you're wrong. Well, Chat GPT failed the math test I gave it. So, And I love AI, right? That's another thing. I, I, I think when you know how to use the tool, it's a great tool, but it doesn't prove that you're right. Because all it's doing right. is saying what somebody else already said was right is right. It's a great research assistant. I could see... If we could put all of like nature or all of like a certain journal into an AI for that journal, you could be like, are there any records of mycorrhizae moving this nutrient about? And then they'd be like, oh, well, these two. And you'd be like, boy, you're on something there because that's the future of AI. Not necessarily for that one application, but for that type of niche. So there's two there's two species of AI. If you want to think of it that way, there's closed and there's open source. And most of the open source is being trained in specific areas. So training is actually very expensive when you're trying to train train an AI model to be able to talk to you about French literature uh, and uh, cosmology and biology. But if you're training an AI into a specific realm, then you can bring training costs down to like a hundred bucks for a model. And then you can research resource share. Like you're developing tech now where, like we could all like almost like running crypto mining, like we could all be running a computer that's part of that AI's network in the background and even developing ways to compensate each other so that we don't overuse resources. Right. So there's a cost yeah. to access my machine. Maybe it's pennies, but there's a cost so that some spammer doesn't destroy me or whatever. And so we we could be moving toward creating ecosystems that help us build better ecosystems. So we're going to create an AI ecosystem that helps us build a better biological ecosystem. And that would be fascinating because we, we need to know that 
15 years ago, some researcher noticed something about the effect of selenium in the absence of zinc that was different. And That's right. I, I, I don't have time to go try to find that because I don't even know if it exists. <laughs> All right. So yeah. now I'm looking for a thing. You're saying find the needle in the haystack, but I'm not going to promise you there's a needle in there. Right. So like, the way I describe the work I've been doing is finding a needle in a haystack of needles. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and they all stick you. Well, that, well, well that, that's an interesting way. You could go through the haystack pretty quickly and find it yeah. and get it stuck on you. Yeah. But, yeah. but with this information, I mean, one book, one volume of a series of volumes is $500 in bacteriology at the highest level. Oh, wow. And, and so it's very difficult to access. It's very difficult to digest because those volumes uh it's called Burgi's systematic bacteriology it is actually um primarily written so there's no images this is the other thing if you notice when you look up you know soil and fungi journals they don't show their images they just show these pretty little charts mm -hmm. and so no one gets to argue with them no one gets to question what they actually did no one gets to yeah. verify they actually did anything yeah and so these studies and also Let's backtrack a minute. These studies that the universities are doing, uh, who manages the university farm? Oh, yeah, the grad students that have been there like a semester. Yeah. yeah. And that's what science is on for farming rather you know, than like the, the salad and farming. interesting because you publish this thing and let's say we introduced this particular little guy, right? This little, little, little worm guy. And he was in there. And because the worm guy was in there, everything worked better or worse. And since they're not producing the images – there's no other researcher going, hey, wait a minute, what's that other little thing there? Because I did research on that thing, and it caused the thing that you said this thing caused. So which one of us was right? You can't have that discussion because it's closed off. You can't see into it. That's I never thought of that, but that's actually very astute, Matt. Well, this is why there's no other soil microscopy books other than mine. Yeah. No one's willing to show their, their answers and their images. And it's bizarre. I mean, Elaine Ingham's been talking about writing a book on microscopy and soil for 20 years. Hasn't shown any of her work publicly. That's and so, and so this, this is the first work of its kind. And I love Elaine. Elaine. I do too. I do too. If you read her papers in the eighties and nineties, they're incredible. And, and, and actually there's many more papers written by her husband, Russell. So, yes. so check out Russell's work. He's the lead author on the um, ecological monogram that Elaine refers to all the time as the foundational soil food web document. Yeah. Um, they both were incredible in the 80s and 90s. Even some of their theoretical ideas were, um, weren't even technologically possible until I started doing them. So there's a paper written in 1981 about epifluorescence for analyzing roots written by her husband and her that I started doing with this and no one had done before. I think mm. she lost access to the, these used to be $30,000. Oh. And so she lost, she lost, when she lost the university, I think she lost access to this stuff. Okay. Um, but now it's LED. And so this is the first generation of LED epifluorescence. And I'm the first person to map it out and do the work. So that's awesome. And that's, that's technology for the win because technology by its nature is deflationary. And you tell yeah. people, like, no, do you know how much technology is? Like, go look at your TV set. <laughs> right. And, and tell me what it would have cost in 1995, assuming you could have bought one, right? 
and, and it, then you then the argument dies. Well, I didn't right. invent the technology. Well, I did. Right. I right. mean, the newest thing that we never invented before will come out and be cheap. I mean, that once we invent a thing, we will keep making it better, faster, stronger and larger or smaller, depending on the goal. And it will continue to go down in price relative yeah. to the inflation. Right. Because you can say, well, this was a thousand dollars 10 years ago and it's a thousand dollars today. OK, so it's five hundred and seventy dollars today. That's what you just said. And that's exactly problems. it, though. It's yeah. the free market of ideas that's missing from a lot of these spaces. Yeah. And it's like we need to bring we need to apply that free market to those places. That's why I the our cell database is really for everyone, you know, that, that I'm creating. I want to participate in it as just one of the crowd. I don't want to yeah. be like No, that's no. monkeys up the truth. And so it's like we're at a cusp moment, I feel like, where people are wanting truth. People are recognizing that they've been lied to their whole lives. Well, when you create a centralized authority, you create a gate. And yeah. then the temptation to use the gate is too strong for anybody to resist. It's the one ring, you know, of, of the Lord of the Rings. Like, why shouldn't I keep it? Right? Like, I'll never use it. Why shouldn't I keep it? Well, yeah. sooner or later, what you are defending will be challenged. And it's very tempting. And the longer you've been using it and the more money you've made doing it, the more tempting it is. Let's kind of come back to the central thesis, though, a little bit on the soil and the approach that you're recommending. What do you say to the person's like, my soil's great. My plants grow every year. I have no real big pest problems. I don't irrigate that much. Like everything's wonderful. And I kind of get this because I've lived with crappy soil conditions now ever since I moved to Texas. But where I grew up in Pennsylvania, if I wanted to grow a tomato, this is not an exaggeration. I could have took my heel, dug a hole in the ground, dropped a fresh tomato in the ground, smashed it up and kicked dirt over it, you know, and, and then thinned out a few seedlings that popped up out of there. And in six weeks, there'd be a stalk the size of my thumb with a tomato plant start to put flowers on. So I, you know, when you're kind of in that place where you just have these naturally fertile systems and my grandfather had always taken care of the, those gardens. So, you know, it was organic matter going in every year, but he didn't know, he wouldn't understood a word you're saying. This is a first generation Ukraine immigrant, right? Like he just grew food because they needed it. But we did have that, you know, that Dutch Amish country, Pennsylvania soil is some of the most fertile on the planet. But I still think those people could benefit from this approach. Absolutely. Um, especially because it's about understanding what's going on. And so it allows you to improvise when things go wrong. Yeah. And I think that that's the, like right now people are like, oh, man, I do everything right. I've got the minerals there. I did all the, the amendments and then it's 104 for two weeks straight and humidity is 100 percent plus and the, the bugs are still eating it and attacking my plants. It's like, yeah, because the evapotranspiration of the plant, right, it stopped right. because there's no differential between the humidity and the ground uh, and, and, and so they're sweltering. And so it's like understanding what is happening and uh, allows us to respond. That's a huge part of it. Um, I, I, I believe that biochar was done in some places, in some areas pretty regularly. So that could have already been done, been done. Mm -hmm. Um, rock dust is definitely another level. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and all these places do better when they have rock dust, mm -hmm. uh, especially basalt, right? Yeah. And, and then the, the, the endophytes, 
that we're just learning about are wild. I mean, to realize that Saccharomyces cerevisiae beer and bread yeast is responsible for up to 45% of the CO2 that the plant corn uses in photosynthesis internally. So you're like, wait a second, almost half of the CO2 the plant uses in photosynthesis comes from the yeasts that are inside its body. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, okay, that changes everything. And so so there's a whole other level waiting for us. Our ancestors did a great job, but they tended to mine the soil until it was done and then moved west. Yeah, because that's part of my thing is how do you know that that soil will be the way that it is now when your great-grandchild is is using it? And just assume that your great-grandchild will be using it because even if they're not, somebody's great-grandchild will be using the soil that you look at every day. And we have to get back to the seventh generation of thinking because the way I would answer it is, if you came to the United States about the time that the colonies were, people stopped dying every day and they really started to get on with growing stuff in earnest, you could have said that about just about any piece of land in the eastern United States. Like, unless it was a marsh and it was anaerobic or something, if it was flat and moist enough to grow and, and dry enough to not be muck, you could have dug a hole and planted shit in it, it would have grown. Well, how much of it's still that way? And we think that's so far along, you know, 300 years. It's 300 years in world history, you know, planetary history. It's nothing. In human history, it's a snap of the fingers. It, it's it's just enough time for Xanos to get rid of half the population or whatever, right? Or <laughs> Thanos, right? That's Thanos. I don't really know my Marvel or DC universe. I don't, yeah, I never saw that thing. I know there's the whole meme about Thanos snapping his fingers and, Whatever, like that's how long 300 years is in human yeah. history. And so we have to start thinking like somebody's going to be here in 300 years. And what are we leaving them? And our ancestors are the same ancestors that stood by giant trees. They're the same ancestors that built pipes that are 50 feet wide. They're the same ancestors that made all these giant bridges that we see everywhere. Yeah. So we have within us this greatness and it's like that's what needs to come back it's like we can fix all this we can replant we can fix the ridges we can fix the watersheds i mean uh, right now you roll you've got it for the next 60 seconds i'll be right back okay yeah yeah so darren doherty i was just talking to darren doherty regrarians and it's there's all these people who are doing massive projects fixing key line design fixing with swales Jeff Lawton has done projects all over the world doing the same thing. And so we have these massive opportunities. We have these massive skills and abilities. Neil Speckman is another friend of mine. I tend to be friends with all these people uh, <laughs> because there's something to learn from each of them. Even yes. though, you know, uh, I'm, you know, Neil and I are very different. I'm like, look at this soil microbe. He's like, I am never going to learn anything about soil, Matt. And I'm like, but he's like, I'm just going to make earthworks in the driest places and figure out the business side of like the aquaculture <laughs> and he's rocking it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's, and, and you see these people all over the world, just one person like Neil Beckman is a great example. He goes there. He's one person working with people who have never held a job, never worked a job. Don't understand what it is to work a job. 
And so he's teaching these people how to like work for the first time ever and how to have a schedule and habits as they're literally taking 70 hectares as pure white desert and yeah. turning it into what is absolutely a stirring paradise. The the last video where the waves of grasses are going, oh my yeah. gosh, I think it's, I mean, I, I feel like it's a, something out of biblical times because of where it is. And I think so, the thing that hit me the hardest about his work is when he was talking about toward the end of it, where they shut the limited amount of irrigation they had off, and the people who slowly bought into this in the beginning were begging him not to, and he's like, but if we don't turn it off, and it doesn't continue to work, then it's not what we think it is. And like that took some stones. I mean, and you mentioned him, like he's a dude that literally took a PDC and then went and worked on a project to that level. That was his, that was it. Like a week from, later. Yeah. It was like, he got the opportunity. He went to Jeff and said, will you please help me with this? Cause I, I can't say no, but they're going to kill me if I go there and screw it up. So like, <laughs> I need help. And Jeff's like, yeah, it can be done. I'll help you remotely. But yeah. And he, to take that project on at that state in his life and what he's doing now, like down in, in the Mexico area is insane. It's insane. And he did that. He modeled that first out at in Eritrea. I was like, yeah. he went to Eritrea. He was like, Oh yeah. I was like, <laughs> okay. And that's the thing is it's like we, with very little resources, we see these examples of people with hardly anything. They show up with courage and drive. And then they make these massive changes on the landscape where they're feeding thousands of people. One man. These guys are like the green berets of permaculture. If you think about it, they go yeah. in there, they win the hearts and minds of the local people. They organize them. They make food happen. And then they leave. And then the business is, 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 is literally populated by the local people. And they're the ones that benefit. So yeah. this, this could be happening everywhere. And realistically it needs to happen where we all are right now because the easiest place to reach is where you are. You don't, we all don't need to be super manning about like Neil. <laughs> we can look at what's beneath our feet and we can improve and change things immediately. Hmm. And, 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 and with regenerative soil, you could be growing in a smaller area and get more nutrient dense food. And, you know, uh, not everyone uh, knows what it's like to go carnivore, but I can tell you this. When you have more nutrient-dense food, like if you go carnivore, you suddenly don't eat very much. You're, you, you're satisfied. You're like, I got it. And you're not tired afterwards. You're like, let's go. Yeah. You know? yeah. You're not worried about getting upset stomach because you're doing to go lift things that are heavy. You just yeah. go. Yeah, and so we have people who have shown us the path. But I feel like it's an open road, and we all need we all need to think about taking it. Yeah, can you talk about maybe what testing people can do or should be doing, and like what are the limitations of what you can do with a microscope? Yeah, that's really good. So, so the microscope is the the context where everything gets seen. When we look at microbes, they're the canary in the coal mine. While we say like to say that microbes have the most effect on pH and EH and nutrient availability. They're also the most affected by their surroundings because they're so small. And so they react instantly to changes. And so we can use them to see things before they manifest, before they take over. You can see problems. You can see um, that, that you did the, that you're, what you actually did worked. And you're like, okay, the mycorrhizal inoculant took. I can see that the root is 80% inoculated. And that's 
really easy to do. And so, and so we have the ability to, to look at these things, to check these things, to monitor these, uh, monitor these things in such a way that we can verify we're doing the right thing. Um, can you repeat the question? <laughs> I'm just saying, like, what, what other testing is necessary to augment oh, right. the, the Okay, so, so the microscope is that context. It's the context between sciences. We get to see things and understand things. But if you don't know what the pH you're looking at, then, then you actually have, like, have no context. If mm. you're not knowing where the soil came from, it's like a blind test. You're like, oh, this soil's from the dirt road, or this soil's from the garden, or this soil's from the beach, or this soil, you know what I mean? Or this is old forest soil, or this is soil from beneath a pine tree. You know, all these things make a massive difference on what we, ex what, what, what frames our understanding and interpretation. So I pH test, I do nitrogen and phosphorus. Think about this. If your compost is really high in phosphorus, are you going to do your mycorrhizal inoculant at the same time? No. High phosphorus inhibits mycorrhizal growth and inoculation. So just like you don't want to be adding in something heavily nitrogen when you're doing your inoculation of your beans and peas, your cover crop, because they'll be like, oh, there's enough nitrogen in here. Don't form nodules, guys. They don't. They, they don't. So we got to use logic. We got the, we need these tests to be strategic. It's not enough to know something. It's about to know why, when, and how. And these are all pieces that were nowhere in 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 in, in the soil world. And so I drew them all. I drew all these different disparate pieces together and added the other these other bits in. So from there, I actually do salinity testing. I do a fungal to biomass um, and by uh, a fungal to bacteria and biomass test using the microbiometer. Uh, that's really effective because it counts the fungi that's inside your organic matter. It tests the fungi spores and then it also tests the hyphae. So I know that if you're like a, a soil consultant that has been trained in the past before my stuff came along, you're going to be like, oh, but I just measure the hyphae and that's there you go. And you're like, what about the spores? What about, you know, all the fungi that lives inside the organic matter? Because if it's fungally inoculated organic matter, actually the majority are fungi is inside there. So, yeah. so it's like really critically important to have also a check on our work. Um, because the fungal, uh, the, the fungal, the bacterial biometer is a completely different metric and it's done using color, just like all spectrometry, just like so many of the tests we know and trust and love. And so most of the mineral tests are still color tests. Solviva, the, the CO2 test, the respiration test, all these tests for soil are color based. So this, and this is a control on our microscopy work, which is excellent. It's really important to do that. Um, because if there's a huge difference, you want to know why you want to track it down. Uh, and then, so I, I, we're talking, and then I analyze the, using the microscope things specific way and, and using that information, you can, you can triangulate and understand your soil so much better because you hold up the H, you know, charts and you're like, oh, well, I have nitrogen available, but Every time it rains, because I'm right on that line, it's going to push the redox, redox down, 
and I'm not going to have that available. Or, or it could be anything, right? Uh, that we're talking yeah. mineral wise. But knowing where we are, knowing what's available, knowing how things behave on top of the biology is incredibly important for me. Uh, cause otherwise I wouldn't be able to give people accurate answers. There's, there's, so what happened? Okay. Let me explain. What happened was I was contacted by a soil lab in another country. I won't say which one, uh, cause probably could figure out who it is. Um, uh, but someone in Europe who's their student of mine and they're a student of uh, the, the top soil science microscopy person that we all know. And they were like, Hey, so uh, a farmer tricked us and gave us both the same sample and we gave divergent answers and then made it public and discredited us. Yeah. And I was like, dang. And I was like, well, did you follow up? They're like, yeah. And then we did it on Zoom together and we we're like matching our movements and yeah, and it was still divergent. And I was like, ooh, that's pretty <laughs> brutal. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, okay. I'll take on this problem. And that's really what led to me doing regenerative soil microscopy the way I did. I jail tested everything. I steel manned everything because it's it just like when we talked about the beginning, the milliliter tricking people. Yeah. There's so much of that where they're creating fantasy and it's fantasy yeah. science. There's so yeah. much fantasy science out there. L- 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 Elaine Ingham was that, 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 that is like a, I, I think for people to get their head around how big a deal that is to have that happen. Imagine that you took, you were a, a, an oncologist and you took a tumor sample that you want to know is benign or malignant and you sent it to independent labs that you trust to formulate treatment plans for your patients. Okay. And they came back and one said benign and one said malignant. That's what you're talking about happening there. It doesn't sound like either one of these people were doing anything malicious. They were just trusting the methodology that they knew. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've been, we've been, we've been carried to this point by so many people like Elaine Ingham, um, maybe in some ways Gabe Brown. Uh, but we have to remember the whole roundup section in Gabe Brown's book, Dirt to Soil. It exists. (laughs) Yeah. So, so. I, but we're standing on their shoulders and we appreciate them for the work that they've done and brought us to here. And so I've just really kind of laid into this hard. And there's that South African tomato farm that years ago I learned about practicing, you know, soil food web practices. They did a paper on follow up on this and they had worse results the more compost they added and the higher microbes they added. And my first question was, well, do you know which fungi and which bacteria you had? And of course they didn't because they didn't do any DNA testing. And their, the way they ID'd things was based on 80s and 90s science. Wow. wow. And so I was like catalyzed. And the only way we can see the invisible fungi is with epifluorescence. So I bit the bullet. I bought the thousands of dollars more than any other microscope that anyone's been using in this world, in this microscope, uh, permaculture, soil science, composting world. And I was able to see things no one's ever seen before. And because of that, I was able, and then I would start doing DNA sequencing to check my work so that my assumptions, um, could actually, cause it's like, if it's all interpretive and visual, how the heck do you like actually verify things? Like I was taking spores 
to everyone, all these different students of Elaine, all like all like Chris Trump and all these people. And they're like, yeah, I don't know what that is. And I'm like, you guys don't know. It's like, do you guys have key books? And none of them had key books. And I was like, and so I went and bitten the bullet. And I buy like these thin little booklets, teeny, like, and they've got like yeah. ring bindings, cheapo for $120, yeah. $150. That's what I don't have. <laughs> and, right, you know. and, and, and they've got the actual spores ID'd in there. Uh-huh. And so, and so I bit the bullet over and over again. I have a very expensive library, but, but it's all cryptic. I mean, people, unless you do like the work, you won't understand it. And so I Man. did all the work so that I could understand and then make it understandable. You're giving uh, me AI fodder here because having one guy like you have all this shit and not having <laughs> it being accessible is a problem. And like, I guarantee you there are people out there going, I don't know what he just said. He's clearly smart. And he clearly knows what he's talking about. He's probably right, but I don't understand it. And we need to like, cause there's a few things you said I had to really, really think about. And I think I understand it. And I'm probably more informed in this space than the average person or even the average farmer. And here's, this is here's, why we need the tests. This is why we need to test the collaboration and the open nature of the yes. research. Because as you're saying this, I'm having a thought about two guys that are so far diverged away from this, but shouldn't be. And I don't even know their names. There are two dudes that run a podcast called Barn Talk, mm-hmm. and I don't listen to their podcast. I, I see their little snippets on, like, TikTok and Instagram. And they're very entrepreneurial. They both own quite a few, you know, your typical 80-acre block type fields. They own some hog bars and stuff like that. And they were talking the other day about the investment in a uh, combine and how expensive that is. And it was, like, three-quarters of a million dollars, and is it really justified and whatever. And I'm just thinking, wait a minute, your most basic thing, and your entire operation on the corn bean rotation or whatever is soil. Here I got a guy that's a, you know, a, a, a substitute and, and charter school teacher that quit and did all this shit on his own. He's got all this information here. And even if it wasn't you, there's, there's a lot of information about how to improve that soil without chemicals and get off the inputs. And they're always bitching about how much money that their fertilizer agent makes, their, their rep, right? Like, <laughs> He's like, he's like, if I was going to be in sales, right, if I was going to be in sales, I'd be a fertilizer rep because when, when the market's good, they're like, well, you can't afford not to add more fertilizer. Look how much you get in the bushel. And when it's bad, well, you can't afford to lose out on any. Like, he's like, they have a pitch no matter what. And, but they're sitting here making decisions about buying pieces of equipment for three quarters of a million dollars and not even looking at the profile of their soil beyond what the agent who works for the state that works with the fertilizer guy that they're bitching about tells them. And to me, this is like, this is an analogy for everything screwed up in, in the world right now that we're all in these little compartmentalized places. Everybody's just trying to survive and survival means money in this world. And we don't have enough of this research and collaboration going on because some of the stuff you're on could be earth shattering, totally, you know, revolutionary ideas. But in the end, the complex nature behind them is, is incredibly complex, but the practice necessary for implementation might be incredibly simple because the always. challenge for you now is to break this down to where, yeah, this is all stuff we can do, but do these 10 things and your shit gets better. Right. Cause yeah. that's what, that's what people want that run a garden. Nobody that runs a garden mat's going to go out and buy that microscope behind you. Right. Well, what, how to use it. well, what I do with my book is I set things up so that you have menus. Okay. This is how I ran my classrooms. 
Yeah. So unless you have a menu of options that yeah. you're like, oh, this is my bioregion. These are the cover crops. These are the micros based upon the deficiencies that I have. You literally match it up. So yeah. the complexity finds simplicity when you go, how does this apply to me? And you go, yeah. oh, this is my section. Oh, this yeah. is my section. Yeah. And then, and then with the microscope, it's actually much simpler and easier than people recognize. There's again, been a lot of this stuff going on and yeah. it is complicated. It's the most complicated system in all existence. The, the universe is not complicated like this, but it breaks down into incredibly simple, like for instance, even genetics, people are like, genetics are crazy. It's like, actually yeah. we have a completely logical system. Yeah. Um, and horizontal gene transfer is the reason, one of the most important reasons why we need to treat our soils differently. Horizontal mm. gene transfer is, is, is the reality that microbes are absorbing dead and fragmented DNA from the past. DNA can take up to millions of years to break down. Mm -hmm. And it's 20 to 40% of the soil profile. So that organic matter is made up of dead microbes dead yeah. dead plant cells dead animals like all of it is in there and so they're sourcing that and so when it goes anaerobic and stinky that's why they make pathogens because they yeah. go oh here's the dna from then this is the time they take it up and then they become it and so and a lot of the genetic transfer is being done by retroviruses that we carry in our bodies Right. And in, like, in compost, there are new viruses, and they infect yeah. the bacteria. Yeah, yeah, and not all viruses are bad. I, I try to classify viruses as their own thing, and I, what I describe them as is an evolutionary. Yeah, that's their their they that's have to have a function. They don't eat anything, right? They're not decomposers, right? They're not predator. They're not prey. You kind of run out of you look at every living thing, and you can drill it down that it does one of four things as a living thing, right? Um, viruses do none of those things, but they create this cross communication, this genetic communication network. That's what they are. And people are like, well, and why do some viruses kill you? Some, some, some systems don't handle upgrades. Yeah. That sounds very callous, but like take a windows 95 machine and try to put windows, whatever the hell they have now on it and see what happens to it. It'll die. Yeah. <laughs> It'll fry the processor. Can't do it. Right. So some systems aren't ready for the upgrade and they that's part of evolution too. It's hard. Evolution's harsh, man. You didn't make the cut. Yeah. You find out the hard way real quick, you know, but it's amazing though, because now what we're talking about is humans in the soil sharing this genetic transfer mechanism because so, yeah, I've mapped that. So, so for instance, when we talk about EM and we're like, Oh, lactobacillus, our body is covered with lactobacillus. Yes. Yeah. Um, when we talk about, I tested the DNA of what people sell and create as EM and biofertilizers, okay. and 20% of everything I test is E. coli. And at first I was like, whoa, but then I learned E. coli is like saying mammal. And the reality is there's a handful of pathogens and millions of E. coli, and they uh -huh. are in the soil, they're in all the manure, and they're inside all the plants. Okay. So how do they get into the digestion of the animals? Oh, they're in the plants to begin with. They're endophytes. They, they actually fix nitrogen inside plants. 
And so inside our bodies, they're just continuing the process. And in fact, E. coli being in the food, in the animals, in the soil, in the compost, in the manure, and in our gut means that it's actually a feedback loop. Yeah, It's actually a yeah. communication loop between ourselves and the environment. And there are toxic E. coli's. But of course. I mean, I've often said I think we're sanitizing ourselves with death, right? Because so E. coli occupies a biological niche in these systems. And if we eradicate it, then nature is going to do everything it can to fill that void. And if the void is there and there's no competing E. coli to compete with the pathogenic E. coli, well, they're going to have a party and do really, really well. And I do feel like on some levels as humans, we've because the stuff they say we have to do today to not die, we'd all be dead. Ah. There wouldn't be. Come on. Like the stuff they say today will kill you. I'm like, if you grew up in the 70s, you would realize the absurdity of what you're saying. You're talking to a generation of kids that, you know, packed 25 kids in the back of a freaking station wagon and sleeping bags while you drove across the country. And, and, and you're telling me if I don't wash my hands 87 times, I'm going to die. Like and I, I think kind of maybe we've got into this idea of like a sterile food system and we've done it intentionally. And I think unintentionally, when you start using all these chemicals and commercial fertilizers, you're sterilizing. And then sooner or later, what's the thing from uh, Jurassic Park? Uh, life will find a way. Yeah. Right? And it may not be the life form you're looking for when you do that. It might start. But it was the other one that he had. It all starts out with ooh and ah, and then comes the ah. And that's like a different way of having the same thing. Like we're creating this pathogenic environment by wiping out the competitors. Yeah. And we used to live in an environment that was was filled with, with wildlife and we used to have wilderness and we used to have clean rivers and lakes and streams and clean mountains. And our ancestors, they would have injuries. They weren't like not taking chances. Like that's yeah. the thing people were like, oh, back in the day, they would get a cut and they would die. It's like, actually, no. No. They would they like these people that they find, these they always have sustained injuries and the and then they heal from this injury and they yeah. lived until their sixties or their seventies. And we you're like Paleolithic fossils of people that underwent freaking craniotomies with stone yep. tools because they figured out the brain was swelling and they made a little hole in the dude's head and it made room just like they do now. I mean, I wouldn't advise using that if you need a craniotomy, <laughs> okay? But um, they it live. work. So if, if you had gotten advanced enough to poke a hole in a dude's head for brain swelling, then they probably were advanced enough to handle a scratch or a cut or a broken finger. I mean, come on. Yeah. And, and so we have this myth of a past that we're fed. And, and meanwhile, I, I feel like we have so much more latent healing power, so much more health that we can have access to. Um, I raised my boys eating the best foods that I could find, the best foods that I could grow. And man, there's a difference when you raise kids eating like really, really good food. Uh, it's especially a little Gracie there, man. You, got, you know, you got like one of the nice Gracies on your hands. Um, how, how does this work? Because whenever I talk about permaculture, I get the whole, well, this is fine for your garden. You know, we got to feed the world. How, how is this going to scale the acres? I'm sure that, that I like those two dudes on Barn Talk, but I'm sure they'd be like, it ain't going to work on a 160 acre block. 
how do we make this scale? Well, regenerative soil worked with every, with all the systems. So we could be doing a grazing operation and then we manage our soil strategically in that context. Um, you could be doing, uh, I mean, that's the thing. It, it, because it's testing and reacting using those lanes to keep things yeah. coherent, it allows us adaptive. I really don't. I really always want to support people heading like the way Joel Saladin does, like try not to box people in, but inspire and and, and keep it open. Um, but if we are, let's say we're at 10,000 acres, uh, there's so many things that we could be doing. Uh, it depends on what we're growing. We may be inoculating the seed before we, we we have it come out the hopper, right? You're putting inoculant and that feeds through the system just fine. I got a jang seeder, I know how it works. Mm-hmm. So you may be inoculating the seed and that literally could change like 50% change. And then the next season you're like, okay, wow, I saw that, that proved that to me. Now I'm gonna do a foliar spray at those hot time periods for the thing that I know my plants are low in in that time period. So there's always dips in minerals as plants grow and depending on the conditions and the environment. And so providing that at that weak point. And so you're like, what's the weakest point of my plant in my season? I'm gonna attack that strategically. So just those two things take you up to 60, 70% like improvement, right? And, and, and it's using the lens using testing and using the strategy that goes from the micro to macro mineral to, 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 to pragmatic solutions. Uh, and, and, and I even have things because people in Latin America were like, listen, I can't buy new stuff. I still have all the chemical ag stuff. I don't want to use it. What do I do with it? Mm. And you have Jairo Restrepo being like, um, let's combine that with biology stabilize it, make it bioavailable, and then you apply it. So I have that as well in the book so okay. that it reaches people from all these different angles in the in the methodologies that they recognize. So yeah. you know, I have the math that scales up to a thousand acres, you know, to a, to a ton, you know, if you want to. Yeah. It, it all depends on what we're doing, whether we're doing giant Bokashi, whether we're doing EM at a thousand gallons. All of these things have solutions in EM. You can be running through any kind of irrigation. It doesn't clog up like compost tea does. Mm-hmm. Um, th- these are these are things that people are doing. Like here's a great example: a farmer, strictly commercial, conventional, adds pow- the the powdered nitrogen. You know all of the all of the above. He just decides to do EM, watering it in twice. So when he adds it in, he waters it in. When he okay. adds the nitrogen, he waters EM in. Okay. Is, genius and then follows up a month later he was able to get i, I think it's in 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 through in two to four, five months i can't remember because two is five when you spin it my brain does that um so it's either two or five months um time he was able to go 0.5 percent increase in organic matter and if you know what that means that's an entire year of good organic matter growth in in everyone else's book. So he did that in five months in Arizona with peppers and nothing else changed, just adding biology. Nothing else changed. No compost, no nothing. 
So I would I I would talk to those guys and get them to do one thing that I know will dramatically change things, and then have them be like, "Dude, okay, okay, now we're talking. What do we? What 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 next?" Yeah, yeah. And from there, when I'm making the money, saving the money, then we walk down the street together and we start doing the, doing more things. That's so important because, because so many people in our space want to push perfection and you're an evil person because you're not doing it exactly right. If you can give people a first step and they see an improvement, they'll take a second and they'll threaten you if you don't help them take a third. Like, you better help me take a third step, right? They'll, they'll start demanding help instead of you trying to push it on them. But you got to give them something that they can see works. And I also think, like, we don't know what we don't know. And like, here's something I'm not sure if you're aware of this when you're talking about doing these things. This is from a company called AM Biochar, and it's biochar milled down to five micron size and placed in a liquid form. And they have trials of this stuff, Matt, where like they went out to like this public park in California. And all they did was like spray one side of the walkway and not spray the other. And you look at it three years later and the one looks like it's being manicured and cared for. It's so green. And the other side looks like just like it did three years ago. And all I did was like two or three applications of this stuff. And it's not expensive because they're liquefying. And as you mentioned, going through like compost tea will clog. Well, this is milled down to the point that it won't. And now you can scale with biochar because I love biochar. I've done a lot of work with it. But when somebody says, well, I can't make enough biochar to make a meaningful difference on a thousand acre plot in any reasonable time frame, I'm like, you're, you're probably right. You know, you, you, you probably are. That doesn't mean it can't play a role. And that's just one example of how something that we have already written off because you didn't know that like this, you know, husband and wife, tiny little company came up with this. This is accessible. Like, yeah. I don't know if you know about that company, but if you don't, you guys need to talk. I mean, yeah, I think I've seen them before. You know, one of the cool things about comp uh, about biochar is that the biochar dust makes microbes go nuts. Yes, but it's hydrophobic. So there's like this this uh, surface level tension and this charge that's on the outside of it. And that's good. But if you use something like a surfactant, like uh, like 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 yucca extract or like hyperdrive, Do you know, it what works. Actually, it you know actually, what works really great. What liquid uh, wood vinegar? Liquid. Oh, smoke. my gosh. So it's a yeah, yeah, you know, Michael. production. And like when I when I quench my biochar. I put a tablespoon of, of wood vinegar in and that breaks that surface tension. And it's so, so important because the production you, creates the solution. It's crazy. Yeah. And so what I do is I do a capped EM ferment with a little bit of powdered manure and powdered biochar and okay. the microbes eat the biochar dust. So now the, the they, they are embodying that, that carbon. So, so I, I really feel like there's so much room in that wow. space, but 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 I would I would figure out what these these two guys are growing. I would tailor to exactly that. If it's something like corn, that's like shooting yeah. fish in a barrel. There's yeah, so much corn. research done on on biofertilizer for corn. Yeah, like, they're like in Nebraska or Kansas. I don't know exactly where. You just tell by the way they talk, the way they look, the way they just—it's like you're somewhere in that Midwest, you know. Yeah, corner. I would do a foliar spray of nitrogen-fixing bacteria so that they're getting nitrogen-fixing in their leaves happening, because in all these sterilized fields, these all these sterilized seeds—they lack that biology, which is yeah. inborn in all the corn in Latin America. And so when I worked with those corns, 
they like exude all this like exudate gel off their aerial roots and inside them is nitrogen fixing bacteria and you have people harvesting that and putting it into these brews that they're now oh, wow. selling so That's it's awesome. it's really accessible That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. It's it's probably unrelated, but you're making me think. I grew uh, sorghum about five years ago here, maybe even further back than that when I was establishing the swales for the food forest. That was like a plant that I just included in there. And it would create these exudates on the leaves in the, about this time of year when it gets hot. And you go out and there's freaking bees all over the leaf of the sorghum plant, not taking pollen, taking the exudate off the sweet sorghum as, as like a nectar yield. And like that's what, you talk to beekeepers and they don't know that. Like guy, guy's been in beekeeping 50 years, has no idea that bees behave this way. And that just shows how much there is to learn. And I need to run out with that damn dog back in again. Um, can you talk about, I think I'll be gone for like 10 seconds. Since you moved to Texas, you know, you came here, I think from Cali, right? Very mm -hmm. different environment. What have you been doing here on your place in Texas and how's that worked out? Yeah, I can talk about that. So we moved from California. We fled California. And we we settled here in San Marcos, which was really wild because we found out that my ancestors uh, still have graves in San Marcos, in the, the old graveyard. So after our uh, our common ancestor fought in the Revolutionary War, the eldest son I'm descended from, the second son settled helped settle san marcos so it was like a weird very american full circle kind of thing and we were there for for about a year i, I transformed that site into like a little cute permaculture neighborhood kind of thing and and then we moved on to this site which is 24 acres just below austin in the floodplain and we i put in a 40 tree food forest in february it's so hot that I'm really just trying to nurse it through the first season and year because, you know, there's no shade really. They, they, they haven't grown enough to, to make their, their, their shade happen. And, and I'm putting in cover crops. I'm basically growing soil at this point okay. because we extract, right? When we, when we take things away from our site, when we grow things and eat them and, 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 and if, if our humanure goes somewhere else, um, or if it stays on site, it returns. But we're always taking and extracting. And regenerative soil is about it getting better and better. So that implies that there's a flywheel of, of growth in all those areas. And so I need to create momentum. I need to get that momentum going. And then I can exist off of the essentially the interest of my mm -hmm. investment into that yeah. soil. And so I always do that. And and so right now I've amended the soil. I'm I'm in the middle of the first summer of cover crops, and and it's 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 pretty amazing how straightforward it can be when we practice regenerative soil. Um, but it's there's there's been so much um, myth making in organics and biodynamic that a lot of people do things that work against themselves. Um, I mean, just like, like we talked about thermophilic compost, you'll have pH seven soil or pH 6.5. And then they're adding, you know, pH eight compost and, or really hot compost that's high in nitrates and they didn't wait long enough and burning everything. 
and and it's these consequences that that come from not understanding all of that. So I've been I've been applying all that, modeling what I teach, and it's and it's just kind of early days uh, on this site. Yeah, it's I should say it's new, and this this approach takes time, which is why there's resistance in the commercial space because the farmers like I got to pay my bills now, or I'm not going to have a farm next year, and so I. I try to never beat that side of the industry up. I'll beat up the chem ag producers as far as people that make the chemicals and created this problem. I can't beat up a farmer who's trying to keep a farm that's been in his family for three generations in his farm who doesn't see a clear path to a different way. And, and you know, my biggest question for these folks has always been, so what would your profit look like if you had no input costs? And then you just see like the, the brain in the lock because they've never thought about that. And they don't have any idea that that's a possibility. Now, they're going to have a seed cost, I guess, unless they're saving a back portion of their seed, which, well, that, that just seems how humans did it for 99% of agriculture. But like you can literally push input costs, I wouldn't say to nothing, but to five percent of what the average farm is using and 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 that's the approach but it takes time um let's take a few questions here matt um let's see there's a question there that just came in that i missed let's try this um k-bonk says if left untouched will soil regenerate to a natural state any idea how long if at all my thought on that matt is a big ass it depends because there's places where if we don't do something the answer is it'll never regenerate. And, and it, it, we can't say never because an asteroid could hit this mountain and knock it over or something. Who knows? But for, you know, foreseeable generations, there's places that used to be fertile and then no one's touched them for a hundred years and they look like they did a hundred years ago. Right. I mean, I think places, a lot of places we messed it up, but we have to fix it. Yeah. I completely agree with that. There are there are situations that without human intervention will degenerate, and so I I, I feel like the natural state of some certain parts of New Mexico are impossible to grow in. <laughs> you go to like pre-opalite soils, and it's like, you know, there's there's some craziness out there. It's geologically the Earth. There's everything under the sun. And yeah. so, you know, you got like acid lakes and, and whatnot in Africa. And so natural state's a huge variation. If we want yeah. soil to be regenerative for our purposes, we need to be realistic. Um, we need to look at the levels of what we need. Some areas are going to have unnatural, they're going to have naturally occurring higher levels of things than we like higher levels of copper this is where where you know they can tell from the plants they're like oh there's a copper vein around here or there's this or that or the other and so we have to recognize that there are certain limitations uh, and realities to soils everywhere and not all soils have everything that's something that was one of those myths that got passed around if you go back to the studies that they were looking at um, soils naturally have a wide variation in their soils that are deficient and deficient doesn't mean it doesn't have it in small trace amounts. Deficient means that it's at a level that's ineffective for growing things, for growing crops as the threshold, for growing natural native plants as another threshold. And so 
this is another thing that gets circulated. People just assume that because we have soil that we can do anything and, and there, it's all inside. It's magic and it's not magic. And so we have to bring things in sometimes from outside of our site. We have to recognize the climate that we live in. If we're, you know, at the North Pole or the South Pole or something, you know what I mean? Or we're in the middle of, I have a lot of students in Kuwait. Um, and, and if you're in the middle of the desert, you have to recognize where you are. And so applying permaculture to make it amenable for you to do regenerative soil might be necessary, right? Yeah. yeah <laughs> cool yeah. things out, get some shade in there, recognize the patterns that are happening, yeah. you know? And so we need, we need to be the ones really to make things more regenerative. I think that's our role. I think yeah. when you look at animals and nature, they've got roles. Uh, we we relate to the beavers because they're making ponds and 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 making like water healing watersheds and making things grow, making oases in the middle of deserts. Yeah, that's what we are. We are we we are regenerative. I believe I know that we have all these degenerative sides of of humans, but people have like fixated on that. But it's all here because at one point we were regenerative, and then yeah. some people decided to just pull it all out really fast. They went from farming um, to mining is what really happened. And, you know, you mentioned the beavers. The, the, the mascot of MIT is the beaver, right? That, that, that's like ironic. because beaver is the engineer. Like So like the top engineering school in the country's mascot is the beaver. And that is kind of our role to be the beaver. Uh, we can be the otter, too, and play around, but we can't be the, the, the destroyer, which is what we become. And there is this idea, like, just don't touch it and it'll get fixed. And it won't. We have a nature center not far from our place. Dorothy and I are supporting members of it, and we go hiking there and all. But they have, like, this one area, and it's, like, all caliche rock, and it's all eroded, and uh, they have these signs that nobody walk on it. Because if nobody walks on it, and it's got this ravine coming down the center of it that's being eroded by water. And I was talking to the guy that, you know, one of their, their environmental, you know, guys, and I'm like, you cannot walk on there for a 1,000 years. It's only going to get worse. Every time it rains, it's going to open that ravine deeper. It's going to cut deeper and wider, and it'll never. I'm like, you know what a gabion is? Because we could throw a couple gabions in there, put a couple. So he didn't know what a swell it was either. And I'm like, we could start creating silt traps in that gulch and pushing a little bit of water off to the edges, and 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 throw some cover crop down. And some of a gun that would restore itself, but that will never get better. Like that problem didn't happen because people walked there. <laughs> like, to be honest, like most people that come here are afraid to step two feet off a trail, not because of the rules, but because they're afraid of the woods. They like the thing they, you know, the, the, the dangerous stuff doesn't come on the trail. That's just the mindset of the you know, modern American. But the, the, here's a person with a degree in some sort of environmental crap doesn't know how to fix a, 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 a naturally occurring ravine. Yeah. And, and never will. And, and we could tell he was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's really. And he, I know as soon as I walked away, he's like, that guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, I know how water works. <laughs> and I know it'll cut right down from the caliche into the limestone. And it'll cut through. It'll, water will cut limestone, too. I've seen it done. And so we, we have to get, I think, off of the left untouched mindset. I don't think that's where K-Bomb's coming from. He's just asking about it. But, I mean, Alan Savory's shown this with two pieces of land. You know, one grazed conventionally and one untouched side by side. There's no difference. Hundred years of protection in a land looks the same because yeah. it's not properly managed. And either it was in that state due to some natural disturbance, 
it was in that state because of its environment, its elevation, its slope, or we shifted it there. And to me, we should at least start by fixing the stuff we screwed up. And then we can move on to improving the things that maybe it was an environmental disturbance or something. We have to do something. We can't ever take the approach. If, if we just get out of the way, it'll all fix itself. Now, probably the other side is there are places where it would. I mean, I watched this doc- documentary uh, while I was at Voices, I think when you were out there like in the morning one day, and it was about places in Detroit that had been abandoned and like trees were eating the concrete of buildings and stuff like four story buildings with a tree on the roof eating the building. It looked like temples in, you know, Sri Lanka or something. So yes, some places that will occur, but a lot of places it won't. And then just growth in of itself, like just seeing vegetation of itself does not necessarily mean healthy ecosystem. Like all my biochar stuff goes back to research about paleolithic culture in the Americas, and like I had no idea the Amazon was a wet desert would be the best way to describe the Amazon basin is a wet desert. That made no sense to me until I what they were talking about is nutrient in the soil and all, and how man shaped this into a productive system when it was just a vegetative system. And I had no idea about that. And like so, I think we need to continue doing what we can while we can, and, and like what you're doing needs to be documented and become immortal because you're not and I'm not. We'll, we'll both become soil someday ourselves. You know, like, I don't care if people say, oh, science says we're going to let be 144. Yeah, let me know when it happens. Like, we're, we have a finite time. Yeah. We man. need to do the work. Um, this one, Mia says, basically, she's asking if you have any opinion or knowledge about the invasive Asian earthworm. Yeah, um, speaking of wood vinegar if you water wood vinegar diluted into soils where the invasive asian earthworm are it'll just come right to the surface to escape that soil and you'll be able to gather them up and dispose of them that way Mm, or water the soil with your chickens around oh yeah that too (laughs) or or if you're if you're on large scale yeah you would water this in and then you, and this will clean your whole, all your systems, you know, your sprayers, it'll clean it. But then yeah, you follow up your flame weeder. <laughs> no, okay, that'll, do it. that'll do it. That's a tool that I added this year. And it's been very, very useful to me. Uh, yeah. Very, very it, 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 it works great. Just do it the right time of year. Don't want to do it when it's all dry like it is right now. You burn the whole damn neighborhood down. Um, I haven't seen any of them here. I knew that people are saying they're a problem. Uh, I would just add to it that all our earthworms are invasive. If you're going to use the strict definition of it, like we don't have North American nightcrawlers. We have European nightcrawlers, right? That's where they came from. So that's always going to be an issue, but I like the solution there. Uh, Grumpy Green Guy says, not really a question. I just wonder if you have any thoughts on this. I'd like to see septic systems based on this. Um, I'm not yeah, sure there are. People are doing there. septic systems with EM all the time. So uh-huh. the Rhodocytomonas palustris eats in uh, manure lagoons, so it's it's very adaptive. Okay, cool. So it can be done. Uh, let's see, Amy B. What is the best way to run small, frequent inputs compost system? Raising quail, composting by necessity, bedding, and pine shavings using biochar, duckweed, and urine for micronutrients. So I guess she's saying she has like a sporadic small input. So the important thing to understand is that if you're going to constantly be adding to it, 
if it's static, um, then the bottom will potentially be ready. I know that people do this with earthworms, but the way gravity works and leachate works means that the newer stuff is leaching onto the older stuff too. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I would say that we want to decide at a certain point to be like, now this is going to be composted and yeah. then you like cap it or cover it or just leave it, what, what have you. But you you can't have it be um, like just small frequent inputs and you take out compost and it's just ready. It, you, you have to decide at a point like I'm going to stop this process, cap it, compost it. Um, and you may do things in like a train compost or something like that and go on one side, you know, because that's not gravitationally influenced. Um, but especially if it's auto aerated, like an auto compost or a thing where you where you have a timer and it runs air and you leave it static. Um, I I would say I would say that like the idea of the small and frequent input composting system, even even with Bokashi, it they've been advertised this right where you can yeah. just add a little bit in there and just and and then it's all good. You always even with Bokashi at the end of it, you have to count uh, and let it and sit. You wait. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so there's always this give and take in this process. And so you always need more than one compost. You always need more than one Bokashi bucket because it's yeah. a rotation of these things. Um, so I, I would say no matter what's whatever system you do, if you're adding small frequent inputs, it stops at some point and you're going to make compost at that point. Because um, otherwise it's it's always this in-between mixture of both. So here's what I do for that. I do have worm bins, and so some of our kitchen waste goes to that. It's mostly peelings, fruits left over from the kids, and coffee grounds. But it's still more than I want to feed my my worms. I have two worm bins, and it's it's more than I would be comfortable feeding all of it for a week. Um, so everything that doesn't go there, I have a pit right next to my duck and chicken coop, and I just throw it in that pit. And I throw it in that pit all year long. And I also throw all my aquatic stuff that I grow. So I grow like water hyacinth for the ducks. I grow azola for the ducks. And I feed them in that pit. And the chickens dig through it and everything. And, at, you know, it'll be the fall. Might even do it as part of the workshop, making my Johnson Sioux, where all the deep litter comes out of the, of the coop. And what I'll do is I'll put down a layer from the coop in the ring. And then we'll take a shovel into that pit and we'll sift it like a lasagna and then another layer from the coop and then another sifting from the pit and then another. So it's basically what you said. I'm not really trying to intentionally compost it at all as it's accumulating, but then it's being added into the final composted product, which will take, you know, three to four months to fully. Wow. Get all of that nutrient, we're letting the birds jack around with it. And on top of this, starting this year, every time I put down a new bale or a couple of wheelbarrows of litter in the coop, I'm throwing five gallons of biochar down before I add the next layer. So it's what a you're, step process. That's the best practice you're doing right there. Because by pit composting it first, you're inoculating it with everything that's indigenous. And you're letting all the animals interact with it because they're interacting with the surrounding area and gathering that intel up in their gut and then excreting it. Yep. And so yep. that has all your spaces kind of like mapped out in it and all the microbes 
inoculated it, and then you're doing Jonathan Sue composting. Yeah. That's a completely new level that people, yeah. I think, everywhere should be recognizing. I can't wait to check out this compost. Yes. Yeah. That's probably why your pH is lower than most people's. And that's said. probably part of it. I would also say, like, the problem for I already turned her question off, so I don't remember who it was who asked that question. I think it was Rachel. Um, is that she may not have access to the large volume final piece of the puzzle? Like, if you don't have a chicken coop, you're doing deep litter or something, and 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 then what you would want to do is find some source of carbon and nitrogen and do one big batch of compost. Do the same thing I do. Just bring in good known sources of a green and a brown and combine that in there. And I mean, I build these things for a few bucks because all it is is a six foot uh, across loop of goat fence. I don't even do the pallet or anything. I put it right on the ground. The only negative I have with my system, and I don't know, it might be helpful. I've been thinking about doing something for the underground, uh, like the aeration where they use a pallet for Jonathan Sioux, is fire ants. So you'll learn <laughs> if you have moist, deep anything in Texas, it will be invaded by fire ants. And so I use an orange oil dilution in that and that you don't want to put that right on plants when they're growing. But it, it goes away very, very quickly uh, to control fire ants with that. But I'm wondering if I created that gap, it might be a little less invaded, except those things invade freaking everything. They're Satan spawn. Um, and people say, you know, you, Jack, you said everything alive has a purpose. They do have a purpose to live in Brazil where they're from. That's, that's their purpose. Well, they create aeration. We have our own ants. <laughs> but anyway, um, Faith says recommendation for effective testing of a new piece of land companies, how to actually take a sample, et cetera. Yeah. So for different tests, you're going to take samples differently. Um, so some good companies are Ward. Um Midwest is good. Um, and even getting your local extension center for the minerals is okay too. I mean, it's a standard test, you know, yeah. and getting that information shows you what's soluble and already there, not mm -hmm. what could be there with the microbes added in. Yeah. So grains of salt for all the tests. Uh, and, and I would say the regenerative soil microscopy book, which is just coming out, is going to give you the full palette of options for testing and understanding what's there. Um, and then the first book in the series, Regenerative Soil, will give you the understanding to know and diagnose how, how things are behaving and what actions to take. So I use those as references and tools myself. They're designed so that you can just use the menus and plot things out and answer questions that you have. Uh, and, and, and that's why I say, you know, it's, I kind of get out of the way. I'm a student too, because I set it up so that it's nat nature showing us what naturally happens and what, what we can combine to, to pair with those cycles. So the thing I do for actually to just kind of zoom out a bit, when I look at a new piece of land, I, I first of all, look at the topographic map. I like to be above people, not below them. Um, I like to have privacy. I go and look out back because there's usually a burn pile or pit out back and then go let's look at the topographic map and where the well is in relationship to the burn pit uh -huh. yeah. and where the dump pile is, right? And then if there's like 70s televisions in the dump pile, you have certain kinds of contamination. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so, so I vet it based upon human behavior a lot. 
Um, and then I use permaculture skills to analyze the ROI on it and be like, this is a grazing site. This is going to be amazing for farming. This can be an orchard yeah. site. Um, and I've been on many different sites. I've been on possibly annoying, difficult sites, like in the middle of a redwood forest on 90 acres on top of a mountain. And I've got just green, a couple greenhouses to use. You know what I mean? We where everything's in giant pots and I'm like, okay, well, this is not like what I would like, you know what I mean? Where I'm now, I love, first of all, we love Texas. Like I said earlier, my family fought in the Revolutionary War. My family was here before America you know, declared its independence. And so it was a huge part of like return to America. This Texas is like America was when I was growing up in many ways. Yeah, so is. it feels like home. Yeah. Neighbor, neighbors feel like neighbors. And, yeah. and when people are like, trying to get to know you and they're a little bit like reserved it feels correct and normal right and and in california there was a lot of talk and like and then like they weren't really your friends they just said all that and, and you know what i mean and, and 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 here it's really genuine and if you really need help your neighbors really help you yeah. uh yeah. yeah it's 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 like the what we in what people intended initially. And not only that, I came here and people understood water. They all had ponds. Like all my neighbors had ponds. I was like, you guys got ponds. They're like, yeah. Yeah. What yeah. happens here in summer? And you don't need, like, you, you don't, you don't need a, an earth disturbance permit to dig a hole in Texas. You just dig the damn hole. You know? Yeah. And, and, and they understand how to do it right. They understand yeah. that they we're all in relation to each other. So like, it's so amazing. And not only that, the sides of the highway where they're like sinking the water in and they've got all the wildlife yeah. corridors. Yeah. It's like all the things that California had said that they wanted to do and we should do this. They yeah. already just did naturally in Texas because it made sense. Yeah. And so for me, I was like, oh, wow, people understand permaculture here naturally as part of common sense. Have you, have you experienced like, as long as you've been here, a good season of the sides of the highways just being covered with like the Indian paintbrush and the blue bonnets in the spring. Beautiful. It's amazing. Right. And you're like, look, government did a thing and it wasn't bad. Like, and it's not a full advocacy for the state government of Texas because I got lots of grievances, but (laughs) people understand like that's, they're saying wildflowers, but, the, that system was designed by the Texas State Highway System. They built, like you're saying, they're basically swales. I think you and I could do a little better than they did, but they did pretty <laughs> good. And they overseeded it with these mixtures of wildflowers. And then they purposefully do not mow those flowers until they produce seed and drop because they're all annuals. So it looks like a perennial system to the unknowing eye, but those are all annual flowers and they come back every year and they get better most years we have some bad years i mean it's it's we're the edge of a desert right i mean like just yeah. go go west 100 miles and you're like what the hell happened it, you, you went in the desert that's what happened uh, i feel like it, this is what brazil this is what brazil is turning into because they're killing the golden goose which was the terra preta rooted yeah. rainforest yeah so i i think if we make so my whole my secret plan is to 
to figure out what Terra Preta is bioregionally. Okay. So your Terra Preta is going to be a little bit different from my Terra Preta down here once we achieve it. Yeah. And Terra Preta, for, for those listening, is soil that is biologically stable such that it reinforces itself. They cut the, the Terra Preta, which is black dirt, in the Amazon, which is you know, normally a desert, dead dirt, well, mostly dead, mostly just bacterial dominant, um, and just leeches. They cut it down to 10 centimeters and just feed it organic matter and it regrows. It and, regrows. So they, and they harvest it and sell it. So this is truly the ultimate level of regenerative soil. It literally physically grows. And so once we have, and we are basically the same distance from the equator in, in like from, uh, from, uh, as Brazil is. And so every bioregion can have sustainable, like, like soil that sustains itself over time and gets better. That's truly regenerative. And so figuring out what that is, those specific microbes for that area is all we have to do. Cause this is biochar. This is our compost. This is our humanure and those special microbes. And so yeah. we just have to get that going. And then Texas is going to be a paradise because it's already has the momentum in that direction. And, 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 and then not only that with the RCL database, we'll see why, and yeah. then everyone else will be able to tailor it to their bioregion. And then we'll have stable soils that get better and better every year, everywhere in the world. And then people We'll start being able to to get off all these inputs, get off all these these chemicals that that you know we all we live modern lives. There are things that require chemistry, things that require chemicals. I'm not anti like those things in if they're appropriately practiced, but we're talking about these corporations that are strangling our future by strangling our farmers and and and, and running them out of business. So that these giant corporations then take over all the land. So this is really about empowering our farmers. This is really about uh, making it so that our food is nutrient dense, making sure that the science is in our hands rather than these, you know, pseudoscientists, priest crafts, you know, government appointed bureaucrats that don't know anything about the natural world that haven't gotten their hands dirty or worked a day in their life. So decentralize everything, especially knowledge for those that are on the video and can see the picture. And I'm sure you're familiar with this picture map, but that that's a two meter measuring stick with about six inches of it kicked off on the bottom. So that's about six foot of depth. And that's not showing a difference between soil here and soil there. This is the same region. That soil on the left that's dark, loamy black, that's man made. It used to look thousands of years ago like where it says normal. And and Matt's right. It's not just like biochar is a piece of this, but it's like saying a cake is flour, right? Flour is an ingredient. When they built this soil, it wasn't just biochar. It was like Matt was saying, it was humanure, right? They were taking the middens and then they were, you know, planting in the middens where they threw all the cooking waste. They threw all of their pots, which were like clay pots, and they put biochar in there and they crapped them so it wouldn't stink. Right. So then you had all the shards of the the pottery is a structural aid. And they used one of their biggest feeds that they, they used their, their, you know, uh, harvested food from their native environments were these uh, terrapin, which is a type of turtle. And there was massive amounts of the shells and they were used both crushed and burned. They used both because it created different processes 
and adding the calcium. And calcium is one of the most deficient things in these systems. And that's why if you look, the terra preta only comes out so far from the water systems. It's not just so they can have water, right, because there's plenty of rain. It's because how far are you going to move turtles? How yeah, far are you going to you – know, how many turtles can you take before there's no turtles left, and how far can they go, right? So without – or they would use different types of, like, freshwater crabs and stuff for the shells and birds' eggs and things like that, right, and turtles' eggs that they would save the shells and put them into these systems. So we don't really know exactly how they built that, but we can look at it, and we can see, like, when we analyze that, we can find all these elements, and people will say, well – Maybe the pottery shard is just because it was burned with the charcoal. And like, no, this is a like you can look at it under a microscope. This was a pottery shard from a pot. They've literally taken some of them and put them back together and dig this. They figured out in some instances what these guys were doing. They would make this big pot. They would put charcoal in it to keep down human stink. They would they would, you know, and they would do alternating layers of poop, biochar and, and uh, organic matter. And when the pot was full. They would plant something like a you know a early version of an avocado because they're so advanced now. But you know an avocado seed. They put it in the pot. They would grow the tree and plant the pot in the ground, and then the tree would shatter the pot and cause infiltration of all this material horizontally into the soil, which is part of how they were able to build it that deep. Because if all you're doing is putting this thin ass layer down every year, Damn. how long does it take to make two meters of soil? But if you're dropping a three foot deep vessel into the ground and letting nature take it horizontally, you're building at a rate that we can't conceive of today. And, th and think about it. All they had was manpower. And what I don't mean is they didn't have our technology. I mean, all they had more manpower than they knew what to do with. They had all these people sitting around with nothing else to do. You know, they weren't crossing the ocean. They weren't building spaceships. They had no wheels. They, they needed something to do. They didn't have, well, yeah, they didn't have the wheel. The reason they didn't have the wheel is not because they couldn't figure it out because they did have the wheel. They just not didn't have the wheel the way that we do, right? They had pottery wheels, right? They oh. had highways. It was steep soils with no improved roads that were muddy. So they yeah. skidded things with basically sleds and manpower, and they also didn't have horses, yeah. So if you ain't got a horse to pull a cart, the cart only does so much for you. You ain't got a road to put the cart on, and you got to move across elevation in the jungle. The wheel's not very useful. The, the, there was uh, several Central and South American tribes where they found massive stockpiles of basically little kids' toys. They kind of looked like the their version of a matchbox car. Like they had little micro machines with wheels on them five thousand years ago, but nobody put it on a, a like a, a cart to move material. Because we had manpower, we had sleds, and it wasn't practical. And so we have this, this belief that these people were primitive because, well, they didn't even have a wheel. Dude, these were some of the most sophisticated engineers. Like, it's unbelievable. I don't know if you've ever read 1491. I love I that. Add it, I would add it to your, your list of reading. Yeah, I've read that many times. And okay. uh, Guns, Blood, and Steel, or Guns, Germs, and Steel is good, too. I have to read that. I haven't read that one. Oh, that's a let, great one. Let, let's get you uh, wrapped up here. Um, can you tell folks uh, how to find out more about uh, you and your work and where they can get your stuff and all that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Matt Powers, and I have a website called thepermacultureStudent.com. 
And you can also find me on regenerativesoilscience.com. And so I've got over 24 different books. I've got online courses. I've got free books. Uh, I've got free courses all on the permacultestudent.com and regenerativesoilscience.com. And I'll have links to everything Matt sent me, which is, again, permaculture student, regenerative soil science. I've got his Twitter, his YouTube, his Facebook, and his Instagram, all in the audio notes. So if you like what you heard today, you're like, I think this guy can teach me something. I'll tell you right now, you're right. He can. And he has some <laughs> excellent educational materials available, and you should avail yourself of them. And, Matt, dude, this is one of the longest interviews I've ever done. I think the only person I was on for longer than this was, was Adam Curry. Uh, so you've joined an elite rank. We've had plenty that go like an hour 50, but 220, that's, that's, that's a long time, man. So, uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me on. It is great to catch up. Yeah, absolutely. So that we'll, we'll talk offline about getting you up here in November. I love it. Thank you. Right. Take care. All right, folks. And with that, I am going to sign off. I want to remind you guys that, uh, there will be rewinds Thursday and Friday. Two totally different ones than the kind we've done up till now, and I think both of them will be very useful. Um, the Friday one, I think you really will get a lot out of if you take time to listen to rewinds. So if you usually skip rewinds, don't. Of course, rewinds will not be live because they're rewinds, and they will not be on YouTube because they're not video. They're audio only. Uh, so if you generally only check us out on the video side, get over the Survival Podcast and subscribe and uh, check out what we're doing there. Um, next up, I want to remind you guys, you can help support this show and the work that we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And I totally didn't plan this, but this is a good allegory here uh, between today's item of the day and what we were talking about today, and that is minerals. You know, when we were talking about minerals, I said, you, if, you, if you're deficient in a mineral, then you have to bring the mineral in unless you have a star growing minerals for you, elements in your backyard. Um one of the minerals that humans are the most deficient in due to our diet and other things is zinc. The thing about zinc is when you start supplementing zinc, you need to supplement a small amount of copper because zinc uh, at, at, at the supplement rates that are necessary for it to matter can, if you have, are deficient in copper at all, can create a serious copper deficiency because the two elements compete in your gut biome for absorption. So you need a little tiny amount of copper. Well, this product made by a company called Solray is the only one I have found with the proper ratio. I'm not saying there aren't any more. I just haven't found any more. This has been one of my best sellers since I brought it out. I brought this out during COVID. I won't rehash everything, but zinc deficiency is a big uh, uh, comorbidity, I guess, with, with COVID or just severe COVID. Uh, but I don't really care about that anymore. I think the whole COVID thing's kind of, we're done with that. We put it in the rearview mirror. Uh, some people don't want to. I have. But the upshot for me, with COVID was it made me do research into the immune system that I probably would have never done. And after what I learned about how zinc works once it's in the human cells uh, as, as the shutting down replication of viral uh, replication, but also shutting down many different forms of cancer replication, I have made zinc part of my permanent supplement uh, regime. And my supplement regime is a fraction of what it was at one time as I've gotten into better shape. I kind of used it to get here. But two things I continue to take are the zinc with the copper along with quercetin on a daily basis. I only take one quercetin and one of these zinc pills every day. And from what I've learned, this will always be part of what I do. 
along with some supplemental magnesium, along with uh, K2 and D3. Uh, and, and that's and just a good multivitamin. That's pretty much all I take anymore. And uh, it has not just uh, made me feel better. I, I've had almost, since I've started doing that, almost no instance of any sort of virus, flu, stomach flu, anything. Just nothing. And uh, I'm not saying it definitely does that. I'm just saying that's the correlation I've noticed. And I really recommend this product, again, because it's a company smart enough to know if you're telling people to supplement zinc, you better be adding the copper. And I always mention this. It was a doctor in the audience who reached out to me in the middle of the COVIDs and said, I think what you're recommending is really great. But did you know about the copper? And I didn't. So thank you, sir. I don't remember your name. With that, guys, I will sign off. I will see many of you tomorrow night at Pinstripes for the 15-year celebratory anniversary party. And uh, it'll be the kickoff to a great long weekend. That's why we did it on a Thursday. And uh, otherwise, I will be back here with new live episodes on Monday. Take care, everyone. Have a great day. Just run you around. You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.